Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving Podcast. Welcome if you're a regular. Welcome if you're a newbie. Double welcome, perhaps, in that case. The audience is growing, and I'm really happy about it. So thanks for all your support. Thanks for the great word of mouth that seems to be going around about the show. You know, you've got to keep plugging away every week and eventually people start noticing so um yeah thank you and if you are a newbie then absolutely dig into the archive there's a whole load of great episodes which haven't aged at all i mean we've only been going since january so yeah none of it's that old but a hundred percent go back and listen to those earlier episodes because i am really really proud of what we've been doing here in the last eight months or so on the show so um yeah absolutely worth doing This week on the show, we have a bit of a legend from Ireland. I'm of Irish descent as well. You will know if you're a regular listener. Sunil Sharp is arguably the most important techno DJ from Ireland. He's also someone who is extremely proactive in trying to influence the way the scene develops. And not just the scene, actually, the whole of the way nightlife is governed in Ireland. So he's been involved with campaigns going back to the mid-2000s to try and improve stuff like the licensing laws. I mean, if you're not aware, clubs shut at two, if you're lucky, three in Ireland, which is just not conducive, as you'll be aware, to the kind of culture which is, you know, the dance scene, dance culture. But Sunil has, like I said, been extremely proactive in trying to just improve that and kind of beat down some doors I guess I mean Ireland is a country which is obviously staunchly Catholic and really quite conservative in some respects but you know if you've been reading the news you'll know that a lot of 
barriers have come down on the kind of social side in recent years. So it's become much, much more of a socially liberal place. And I think the governing laws of nightlife really need to catch up and reflect that much more clearly. So Sunil has been working really hard to try and achieve those goals. And we talk about that at length in this conversation. He's someone who is more than happy to talk. He needs no encouragement. But we cover a lot of ground. So we talk about techno, we talk about DJing, we talk about producing. He also teaches on a DJ course. And yeah, we just get into all of it in a really good bit of detail. So this is a great conversation for me. I really enjoyed it. He's a great person to talk to. And I think it comes out pretty well. I think you're going to enjoy it. If you want to support us in what we're doing here, you can do so via Patreon, patreon.com slash scuba official. There's two tiers, solidarity tier, which is basically the entry level, but there's a whole bunch of bonus content that goes up on there. So uh, mixes and bonus talking podcasts, loads of stuff. Like every week we have one or two things at least going up there. And then on the musicality tier, which is a little bit more expensive, you basically get on the Hot Flush promo list. So everything we release ahead of time, high quality download formats and all the other stuff too, including private area of the discord so if you want to say anything about the show then join my discord you don't have to be a patron to do that hotflushrecordings.com slash discord but if you are a patron then you get into a private area of that which includes a work in progress feedback channel so if you want me to listen to your tunes or any of the other people in there and there's some really knowledgeable people in there who give constructive feedback that's the place to do it so that's available at all tiers of the patreon so please join us there. And like I said, you get into the discords regardless. So yeah, join that too. If you can't or don't want to join Patreon, that's completely fine. You can leave a review or a rating instead. That's the best equivalent that I tend to ask for. So yeah, hit the five star button wherever you listen to this podcast. Follow the Spotify playlist, which contains much of the music we talk about. And I've already told you to join the discord. So yeah, do that as well. Right. I think we're just going to jump into the conversation. So without further delay, here is Sunil Sharp. Sunil Sharp, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Hey, Paul. How's it going? Yeah, all good. All good, man. Thanks a lot for having me. Yeah, uh, we've been trying to hook this up for a couple of weeks. So I'm glad we're, we're finally live and doing it. So I noticed you just came back from South America, Central America. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I was over. I was over in Colombia, and um, it. yeah, it was definitely in a, a a bit of an adventure. I lost my records on the way over, and um, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my question. Like you're like famously a you know, pretty uh, staunchly vinyl only DJ, as far as I'm aware. So given the myriad problems that can be had with playing vinyl, like why why are you still loyal to it after all this time? Um, yeah, good question. I mean, like, first of all, I've never wanted to refer to myself as vinyl only. I, I sometimes feel it's, 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 it's been used as a kind of marketing term sometimes. And it's nothing against anybody that does use that term. Um, and I think for a lot of people that are going to an event or look back to, uh, listen back to a set, at least they, uh, they're interested to know what format people are on and if people are using records. But for me, it was never, you know, in all the time I've been playing records and playing music, and DJing, I've, I think there was one point maybe in about, let's say maybe about 2013, 2014, 
that kind of time I remember where there was um, it felt like there was kind of a longer gap sometimes between music being made and being promoted to when it actually made its its way to vinyl. And from the perspective of being upfront with your selection, I just sort of felt that I was playing with some DJs at the time who were playing tracks that I should have had by now, you know, and had digitally the people had sent me, but I couldn't play out yet. That was the only time I ever considered it. And I really only considered it for about... Uh, Oh, I'd say about ten or fifteen minutes. Actually, <laughs> it was uh, it, it was uh, Shifted was playing. I remember in the Twisted Pepper, and he was playing. It was a track by. It was a remix by Surgeon of somebody. It was sixty five D Mavericks. It was somebody at the time, and I remember thinking at the time, I've actually played that on my radio show because I I was still playing at that point because I was doing a sort of a monthly radio show um, and just, uh, I guess, to try and be upfront, uh, as they say, for especially and you need to be with radio as well. For a period of a few years there or a number of years, I was playing digital on the radio. But, I, you know, I do make the distinction between um, playing on the radio and, and playing new music to people and then actually, for want of a better term, performing, I guess, to a crowd. And I've always believed that I'll be able to deliver something much better on records i'm sort of in a i it's 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 not even a question of sort of like convenience or you know cost or any of those things it's for me it's just like how am i going to play at my best and i, I do believe it will be on record so that that's always decided for me and and also i think there's a and I've said this before, I guess I, I feel a kind of, yeah, a kind of a loyalty to, to, to the format. Maybe you mentioned that earlier too, just the word kind of loyalty. I do, I do mm. feel that if we, if we all stop playing records and that, that visibility kind of disappears, that the format itself may start to fade out a little bit as well. And it's, it's an ongoing battle too, you know, but primarily records as I've known them have always been a, a, a DJ format, you know, and I, I, I want to continue to use it as my format as a DJ and hope that others will, will continue to play them out too and, and make sure that they're, 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 they're still seen and heard, you know. So it's basically a, a matter of technique, essentially, like your own technique whilst you're playing out. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, yeah, definitely. But also I, I like the process of like, you know, grabbing records and flinging them around. And I, 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 I you know, it, it, it turns into a little bit of a mess in ways as well. I mean, I like... I like kind of not taking my time, you know. I don't like being too careful when I play in that regard. I, it is very much about trying to keep up a, a, a kind of a speed and energy with it and, and build up a kind of momentum from the time that you start. A lot of it's kind of interesting sometimes because depending on what kind of mood you're in, you can actually start, you can kind of, and I suppose this would, um, this would be the same for any DJ, no matter what format, you know, sometimes it can be that you, you know, I suppose it'd be like a, a runner almost as well. You know, you, you, you build up speed as you start, but sometimes you can actually start your set like much quicker and you're, you know, the agility is sort of at kind of different levels maybe when you start. And then after that, it's about kind of like, you know, your speed sort of like almost slows down a little bit. Then you're kind of making different types of decisions. You know, you're doing longer mixes. You're maybe thinking a little bit more about the transitions. There's there's different things happening and different features to your set that you maybe have to consider. But always I've, you know, irrespective of that, I always sort of want to, I guess, keep tracks in the mix and 
you know, new track, get new tracks into the mix at least very quickly and to just make sure I'm kind of manipulating things very quickly. And I suppose it's just that connection that I have with vinyl. It's just always, it's, it's never, okay, when I say it's never let me down, um, vinyl continually lets you down in clubs and particularly on bigger stages when I started playing more on kind of like bigger systems and bigger stages and particularly though in at events and in clubs as well where less people were playing records uh, that's when it started to become a little bit of a difficulty but you know overall you know you know what you're getting if you've been playing records for a long time you, you you know how you need to prepare you know how you need to converse with the sound engineer you know that you need to go and do uh, a sound check i mean this is one of the things i remember there was quite a few djs i knew that that when they started making that transition to kind of bigger stages and stuff they were very staunch vinyl heads but as soon as they moved to bigger stages it was like oh yeah listen you know the ga- the the vinyl just keeps jumping on us and you know making us look bad on, on stage and so we're moving to playing digital now and i i just sort of thought like well you know, if you got down to the to do a sound check a little bit earlier instead of, you know, staying at the dinner and, you know, I don't want to say, you know, you don't party before a gig, but do you know what I mean? Socialising more than you necessarily need to before a gig. I mean, the way I always feel is the time for socialising and enjoying myself generally is after I play. You know, obviously, I'm, I'm always going to hope to enjoy myself when I play, but definitely before a set, you know, and including the set as well, I want to kind of, you know, feel focused and I want to make sure as well before I get to the to that stage or that DJ boost that I know that everything is in perfect working order. So I think it really pays off to go and sound check. And I mean, sometimes people think, oh, sound check, you know, you, you must be playing live or, you know, uh, how long do you need an hour or an hour and a half? Like, no, like I, I can go and sound check in 10 or 15 minutes. I think a lot of DJs who play records can as well, but not everybody does. And um I think you do have to, sometimes you have to be a little bit annoying, you know, you do have to kind of annoy people a little bit, whether that's people, you know, that whether that's the promoters, whether that's somebody that works on your agency who's going to liaise with the promoters, um, sound engineers as well might have like a lot of stuff on their plate on the night and the last thing they want to be doing is kind of you know, having their head wrecked over vinyl and vibrations and stuff. But at the same yeah, time... Yeah, let, let, me, let me just ask yeah. you about that in particular, actually, because, I mean, a, a, lot, a lot of the um, kind of received wisdom about this is that, like you said, like turntables aren't set up properly and are the bit of an afterthought, really, in, to a large extent. So, like, how... I mean, how... How often is it a total shit show? I guess is my question, really. I'm thinking particularly about those festival stages, you know, because I mean, in clubs, quite a lot of the time, the turntables sit there at least semi regularly. So uh, tell, tell me about that. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Again, good question. I think, um, I mean, I've sort of come to the not realization or conclusion that I, I am a little bit more of a club DJ than I am a festival DJ. You know, I wouldn't play the same amount of festivals as other DJs on the circuit. But then I find that when it gets back to September, October, I start playing more than I perhaps was during festival season, you know. But I'm still, I mean, I still played a fair amount of festivals um, over the last while, you know. And to be honest, uh, nearly everything just turns into festival season by default now uh, as we get to you know may through to even early october you know so actually the 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 whole festival season thing i mean it's no longer seasonal anymore 
more it lasts for a significant part of the year but I would say um, I actually and I've, I've said this as well before I mean I think standards even despite the fact that less people are probably playing records overall I think yeah I sort of think organizers generally when they're signing up to something and they know that you're somebody's playing on records more often than not they're getting it right now I, I think the you know sometimes you get places and you're going oh geez I don't know how this is going to be and then you're pleasantly surprised you know because sometimes your own methods are what you deem to be the best uh, setup for vinyl isn't necessarily the way a local sound engineer or promoter or club is going to do it. And you might be looking at what way they've set it up and you might think that there's going to be jumps or vibrations. But then when you play, it's it's actually fine. And sometimes you have to kind of trust. Yeah, I think sometimes you just have to trust it. Obviously, like I said, you, you, it's better that you can sound check and all of that. But I'd say more, you know, nine times out of ten now, I'd say the setups are good. And if they're not, then I think you really have to kind of... Um, you're kind of relying on on knowledge and experience of the past really to kind of accept that okay this set isn't going to be as good as as other ones you know and it's sort of it's about damage limitation it's about getting tracks in quickly maybe sometimes not completely aligned and even on bar exactly where you want it to be and I mean it's it's horrible when that's happening when you're playing on a bigger stage and it might have been a, an event that you were really looking forward to and there's a lot of people at and, and if only they knew what was happening uh, you know be, be, be <laughs> behind the decks you know but I think I'm sure a lot of a lot of DJs will attest to this is that in those in those situations it's about maybe sometimes keeping the mixes a little bit quicker and maybe uh, I don't want to say disguising but you know making things appear to be you know a way you know to be to be a way that they're quite they're kind of uh, I know exactly what you mean it's part, that's yeah. part of the tricks tricks of a trade right I mean it's like trying to make up for the kind of technical limitations that you're presented with that's absolutely part of the kind of necessary armory of a DJ absolutely yeah 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 because I think it's it depending on what track you play depending what way you introduce it what way you EQ it the, the way you're in and out fast whatever it might be it just gives a, a kind of a slightly different imp- impression and I mean you're, you're very much playing for the crowd and the moment then as well and that's sometimes what really can make you know those kind of magical moments you know the uh, 80% of your set could have just be really not going in the the way or the direction that you wanted to and then you kind of just pull something out of the bag or you know you have a a succession of a few mixes because this is the thing as well you can have quite a few mixes that are just really not going as you want them to go you know and then it's just a case of um yeah, I mean, I think sometimes it's just a case of kind of step, stepping back, standing back for a moment and going, right, I've got 30 minutes left here. How am I going to make the most of this? And, you know, what are the issues here? Do I need to turn down uh, the monitors? Is there too much bass level here? Do I need to speak to the sound engineer? You know, maybe the sound engineer can't do anything. Maybe I've already spoken to them already. Maybe it's just down to me. And yeah, like it's it's just about improvising a little bit then in those cases. But I've never come away from those situations ever not wanting to play records again because I mean obviously I've a huge attachment to to playing records but I've a huge attachment to my record collection as well you know and um, and you can I mean even though I lost those records recently which luckily I got back um, 
I mean, I was really sorry to lose them and I was really hoping I would get them back. And the thing about losing records sometimes as well is that, you you know, you're not going to know exactly everything that was in the bag unless you took, a, you know, photographs or took a, made a list or something beforehand. But at the same time, I was, you know, really didn't want to lose them. But at the same time, I kind of felt like, well, it, you know, there's plenty more where, where those came from as well, you know. So um, and I do I do like digging into my collection and I, I very much like playing records from, you know, the early days of DJing as well. I like that records that I picked up in the late 90s, for instance, that I can still play uh, some of those same copies now, you know. So how many records do you take to a show? Yeah, it, dep- it depends. I would say um, hmm, yeah. it depends how many hours. So I think like if it was if it's a longer set, if it's like over three hours, if it's four or five hours, not that there's, you know, you, you know yourself on average, we're playing, you know, two hours or maybe maybe more, sometimes maybe yeah, less. three if you're lucky, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so let's say for three yeah, let's say for three hours I'd probably bring about a hundred or so. Um but I I'd like to have if I can have at least about thirty, thirty-five per hour there. But then again, you know, if it was a if it was a set where I knew the setup was really good and I knew that using that the you know the third deck would be would be wouldn't give me any problem like the decks weren't going to give me any problems and I had a nice setup there for vinyl it might be that I'd like to play on an extra deck in those cases I know I'm going to play some extra records but I think something changed at a, at a certain point maybe around like 2000 and mm, yeah let's see about 2000 and oh maybe the late noughties or that kind of time um when I sort of before then I was very much about playing like you know playing an extra you know an extra turntable and playing as many tracks as I could and all of this sort of thing but I felt over time I kind of felt I wanted to be a little bit more in control of the set and the tracks sometimes and to tease a little bit more out of the tracks sometimes and I've sometimes feel with playing extra decks that you're 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 sort of forced almost to be getting tracks in and out sometimes quicker than 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 is necessary you know with certain tracks you know because you're always trying to kind of like rather than play the 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 tune in all of its glory sometimes you're kind of kind of trying to condense or spotlight part of it or you know just use a feature of that track and that's for the most part what using you know three turntables is about a lot and I kind of found that um I yeah I don't know sort of felt that over time I wanted to kind of just get a little bit more out of some of the tracks so I, I, I haven't felt a slave to the records in that in that way that I used to at a certain point where it was all about how many you know how many tr- tracks or records can you play in an hour and all of this kind of thing so I think yeah. over time I, and, and what I tend to do as well Paul is I do look back at my sets and my record bag after I play and I, I do kind of see well how many did I, did I play over that hour and how many of these records that I'm bl- bringing to sets am I actually playing I always try to bring more than I need. I think I think those times where you're where you're almost running out of records and you still got another half an hour, hour or whatever to play, that's not a good place to be. So I always try and bring more. But the challenge is is when you're going to a particularly a foreign destination and you're playing for a longer you know a longer a long set let's say like going to Bassiani and Tbilisi you know where you could play for anywhere from five hours to to eight hours and some people have played even longer than that you know then I have to bring you know up to three bags um, and you know 
sometimes, you know, you could... If I brought any more, I'd be literally falling over, you know, and that's where you yeah, could I mean, that is a, do that it. That is a commitment right there. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. And, and especially considering things can go missing. I mean, I've had a couple of gigs in Tbilisi where, where bags have gone missing. In fact, the last time I think I played there, or maybe it was the time before that, um, one of my bags arrived. Like, generally, I'll get there a day early. Most people tend to get there like a day early before they play there. And uh, this particular time, I got there, I was, um, yeah, expecting my bags to come through. And now the previous time I'd been over, myself and Mass Defect, we were playing as tinfoil that time and I was also DJing. But our part of our equipment, did, I think it was part of our equipment, didn't show up that time. We got it back though, luckily, and we were able to play. So I was ready for the fact that that could happen. And so the next time I went over, uh, one of my bags did completely go missing again and it didn't turn up in advance of the gig. But we got word in, in the run-up to, you know, that that evening that it would arrive, but it would be arriving on a flight, you know, literally after I had started my set. So I was about two or three hours in and somebody from the club, Levan, or somebody like that kind of like just rocked up with my bag and handed it to me while oh, I was wow. playing. So, yeah, so, so, um, um, so that was the nearest I had to having no, I mean, there's other times I've had to, I've had to get a lend of people's records. I mean, it's happened, it happened in Portugal one time, it happened in Berlin another time, but I think the time in Colombia recently, it was the first time where I literally had none of my records when I was playing, and yeah, I mean, I was going to ask. So, was that the only bag that you were that you had with you that went missing? Yeah, I was. I was very meticulous about that. I had like I was to play a three-hour set, um, and I just figured right, I had about a hundred records, and I thought you know festival as well. You know, I was, I was quite. I you know I selected. I I select every record that was in there in my mind could have a good purpose you know in terms of playing at that night so um so but luckily you know a lot of the a lot of the a lot of local DJs sort of rallied around and, and helped me that night and it's um and uh yeah just very thankful to them that we got something out of it and and what was interesting as well is I kind of got to play some tracks that I what like for instance I'll give you a couple of examples um I played like Decompression by Matthew Johnson you know which is a great tune it's one of the few tracks from the minimal era that kind of still stands up now it's not to say like in terms of big tracks in terms of you know I, 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 I'm not sure if I used yeah, I, I suppose you could describe it as a classic track it's definitely one of the tracks of that era yeah yeah I'd, I'd describe yeah, it yeah, yeah. It, would be, yeah it would be so it's kind of funny when we say classic because sometimes when we say classic we're often referring to the like you know original era of dance music or techno or house or whatever it might be but it is a classic track in its own way but I I, I, I don't know. I think I've played that out maybe once, possibly twice and going back a long time. But in that, in this case, it was one of the options that I had. Like here, somebody has Matthew Johnson's decompression. I was like, yeah, fuck it. Like I might as well play it. And like there was another one, there was another um, uh, Drexia album there. So I ended up like playing Drexia Digital Tsunami. Again, another like uh, incredible track as as is like literally everything they've done and um, yeah to be able to kind of play something like that in front of quite a few people in a kind of an environment that I wouldn't normally be planning to play you know, this kind of, you know, um, advanced cerebral, you know, Detroit electro, you know, it was, um, yeah, it was just, um, it was nice the way it went. I'll definitely have very different memories attached to that set than, than, than I, than I would have if I had had my records. So yeah, yeah, I appreciate that, you know, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so the last question I had on, on this topic was like, just relating to like being able to select music. Cause I mean, yeah, as you mentioned, 
um, you know, as as fewer people play the format, I mean, I think something tangible is definitely lost there, or is there there is a kind of direction of travel away from something that was the kind of a key part of the scene at its formation, but. You know, quite a lot of music just doesn't get released on vinyl now, so that's got to restrict you in terms of what you play. So, and that's that's been a, I think that's been a a process which has kind of gathered pace. I mean, I don't get the impression that it's kind of eased up at all. I mean, I certainly know from from first hand experience that it's it can be pretty challenging to sell vinyl in the required quantities these days, even if you've got a track which is, you know, relatively high profile. So, how do you how has it affected? like what you're able to play and like does it I mean you know does, does that kind of move the needle at all in you know potentially thinking about other other formats yeah I know what you're saying um it, it does it doesn't move the needle in terms of thinking about moving to other formats but it definitely I think what sort of happened is is I just don't li- I don't see I don't download digital music that's the thing I mean I, I think I mentioned earlier I do I did for a period when I was doing more regular radio shows and stuff I, I feel if you are presenting you know and you know new music or a weekly radio show or a monthly radio show you do have a duty to play the newest music that's available to you you know um, and that's what people expect but generally I sort of like I'm picking up records quite regularly I'm also still buying secondhand stuff I have enough music to to keep me going and I you know a fair proportion of that is stuff that's just released or in some cases you know in fairness to quite a few producers and labels I know they send me records they send me test pressings and stuff which which is very good of them you know uh, so I am still getting a fair share I wouldn't call it like a huge chunk like kind of the old days I mean I remember back in the, like when I was working in record shops we'd sometimes and I'm sure anyone that was working in record shops back then could, could tell you this as well you would get sent you know, boxes from Prime or Integral and they would also send you a separate box that was just all white labels, you know. So that, like I remember some sometimes in the past, like back in those days, I would be playing literally a set that was all just stuff I'd got over the last few weeks, you know, that were literally, I would say, 90, 95. Well, who knows what it was, but it was a very high percentage of what I was playing was uh, were white labels that I'd, uh, you know, promo copies that I'd um, that I just got. Um, so but what's changed now is, is OK, I wouldn't get as many of those, uh, but I am still getting some. I am still buying new records and I do still have my own collection. So for me, that is enough. It, yeah, it you do sometimes hear tracks here and there. Um, and yeah, it could be my kind of instinct to go over and start maybe looking at the CDJ or asking the DJ, what's that? I, I kind of don't tend to do that. I probably should maybe sometimes. Um, actually, even playing with Jerome the other day, uh, Jerome Hill, we were playing a back-to-back in Poland the other day and in a, at a festival called Up to Date and um, he started playing a little bit more digital now as well. I would say he was maybe playing half and half but what was great in the set I think there was one particular track he played that was his own one as well and it got like it just got a really good reaction when he played it. I remember he kind of just he dropped it in the in the sound check as well I think he wanted to hear what it sounded like on the system so I think from the perspective of being able to play your own tracks as well it's definitely an advantage I'm sure you can you know you can 
confirm that as well. Uh, and for a lot of a lot of DJ slash producers, that's probably some some you know an area I've missed out on over the years. You know that I could have been playing more of my own tracks and road testing them, as they say. But I don't know. I don't feel that pressure. I I sort of feel like yeah, I am probably missing out on some tracks. But I've been here before, you know, because there was a time when when vinyl had really fallen off the edge you know uh, certainly like for techno and as we got got further into the minimal era there were a lot of DJs and labels who disappeared then you know some re-emerged others then maybe started up as digital labels and then started putting out vinyl but there was a period where there was very little coming out on uh, on vinyl I mean I remember having the conversation with uh, Oscar Malero around the time he was playing in Dublin and he had just kind of moved over to playing digital he's actually moved at this point I think he was using Serato or so or no he's actually for this particular set he was using Ableton um, I think eventually he settled on using CDJs which I think suits him better than using Ableton but actually he was really good at using Ableton I remember for somebody and you know for a DJ who I really looked up to and still do you know I think um, seeing him make that that sh- that shift or make that change over to to digital was um I didn't like it, I got to say. I didn't like when a lot of DJs like that right. moved over to digital. But I understood it, you know, and I could kind of see as well, you know, some of these guys are traveling a lot and, you know, playing new music matters a lot to them as well, particularly on their labels and by themselves. So um, the main thing for me kind of and it kind of references what I was saying earlier about um, your performance not suffering as a result. I don't think the performances of many of these DJs have suffered. I mean, you know, somebody like Ben Sims is another great example in techno as well. I mean, he's just incredible. I mean, he's just he's just one. He's he's a He's he's a workhorse. I mean, he's just he gigs so much. He does so much radio. He plays so much music. He supports so many DJs. I mean, we could say the same. I mean, I can mention many other DJs in in the techno realm. Dave Clark could be another one too. But um, but definitely, I was disappointed when some of these guys moved over to digital. But you know, that was me. I was a bit little bit younger. Um, now I very much see people's reasons. Let me you know. let me just hang on a sec. Let me let me just ask you on that on that point. Do you remember Richie Horton's infamous Facebook? Post where he disparaged final DJs. Do you remember that? I remember that it was something to do with dinosaurs or <laughs> what, what, what did he say again? I can't, I can't yeah, it remember. Was, it, it was, was it was something like that, right? And I was still a vinyl DJ at that point, and I was kind of appalled, as were many other people. I think looking back on it now, I can kind of see his point. Certainly more than I could at the time, anyway. But I mean, yeah, what did you think yeah. Um, I thought it came across a little bit pompous. I got to say, I, di- I didn't really like it, and 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 I think I think that is something that some of the, you know, some bigger DJs in the in in the scene can easily be accused of. It kind of goes with the territory sometimes, but you know, I think he learned from it, you know, and I think he learned from the feedback that he got online that it wasn't cool you know I think a lot of people needed to remind him of his roots uh, needed to remind him that his label were still selling records I think just about at that stage but then at a later point then he came out with that sort of that I think 10 or 12 pack um, or record uh, series and some of which was was incredible like really you know good classic minimalist um, acid um, 
style again that he hadn't done in years. And um, yeah, I, I just think like people can say and do silly things sometimes, but I think it's how they kind of redeem themselves or show that they're kind of closer to the community than perhaps people feel they are when they when they make comments like that. So listen, lots of respect for Richie Houghton, but definitely I think people in that scene, uh, maybe including him and some people around them, kind of lost the run of themselves to some extent. I think just uh, there w- there was a lot of looking down on others sometimes at that at that at that point, and I don't think it was always for a great reason either, because a lot of the output that was coming from that scene was utterly forgettable. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'd agree with you there. Yeah, sure, I'd agree with that. I mean, I think like I, I, looking back at it now, I I mean, I haven't talked to him about this, so I'm I'm. I'm reaching here a little bit, but you know, as you as you mentioned at the top, like the the kind of quote unquote vinyl only thing can be a bit pompous in of itself. Yeah, and I guess the the way I the the charitable way of reading that post from Richie would be that he was kind of like sending up that that area of uh, pomposity. But I mean, I think you're completely right though that there was a was a bit of a disconnect there, and he had some work to do to to, to get it back. Just one little thing on the minimal thing, sorry, just to finish, sorry, I, I don't want to cut into yeah, yeah. there, but there was one thing I always felt with the minimal thing, while, you know, I think anything that is mass produced always has, there's always that danger that you're going to run into a, a point where the majority of it is just kind of utterly forgettable. So it was inevitable that that was going to happen. So I think what I'm, what I was saying there is kind of quite, quite obvious. I think though, in relation to Richie Houghton and why I think he comes out of that era looking really quite good is he didn't release too much during that period. And what he did, I think it was the Closer album. That was kind of the precursor to so much of the stuff that came out. But it wasn't really in a kind of a a dance floor style. But I think there was a lot of production techniques that people just sort of like absorbed, hoovered up and sort of made their own into a kind of a more kind of dance uh, style, you know, which was a lot of what came out in the minimal scene then. But I always felt... Richie was kind of almost, he was quite smart at the time because he was obviously gigging a lot, but his own discography, he didn't put out music for the sake of it. And I think as a result, his whole discography, like, you know, a lot of the greats in this music is, you know, fairly unblemished, you know. So, uh, so yeah, it was it was a point in time where I don't think any of us sort of saw the minimal thing going, you know, reaching the heights that it did, because it did feel like a lot of the people that were in that scene were still quite underground. You know, you didn't know what they looked like. You know, they weren't necessarily playing loads of shows. They weren't on the front of magazines, but it all changed very quickly. And I suppose as those things um change you know you're 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 either you know on that you know on on the train or you're not you know and i think um yeah i, I think it just went into another stratosphere then for for quite a few of them so yeah yeah i mean minimal it's kind of interesting to think about it now right because minimal was a really a musical reaction against um what was going on in another part of techno and we seem to have reached a similar kind of position in the way some of the music is being played now. And it seems like there is there are the, a similar set of conditions that might result at some point in a in a kind of minimal revival. I mean, as the words of minimal revival actually really don't sound great to me. I don't know, it <laughs> didn't sound good coming out of my mouth. But like, it's actually ties into something you said previously about 
the way that festivals have kind of eaten the club scene to an extent and the the festival season is seemingly this kind of never-ending thing now. Mm. And I mean, you mentioned in a previous interview, I think this is from a pre-pandemic interview, but you mentioned, the quote was, people go into a club treating it like it's a festival stage. Mm. And that really kind of resonated with me. And the, the, the general kind of phenomenon of festivals taking up more and more of a calendar and becoming more and more of a thing in particularly maybe the, like the younger parts of the audience. Oh, actually, I don't even know if that's true, actually, because, I mean, the average age of festival goes seems to be fairly high. So I'm not sure what you think about that as a general kind of move, a general kind of direction of travel in the kind of wider sort of scene. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think, I think one of the things that's worrying me a little bit about this is that I think... You know, your first introduction to dance music and, you know, listening to this kind of music loud and, you know, a DJ playing or a live act and being amongst the kind of community that that are also really into us. I mean, I'm sure your introduction, my introduction was in a club or in an indoor space. Um, I mean, if it is a festival fine but it just seems that like more and more and a, a far higher percentage of of events that those who are entering the scene go to are these sort of festival are festival events and sometimes I, I don't know I've just been speaking to people um more so actually speaking to people recently just about their experiences of festivals and I'm not saying like there's that there should be kind of like a well, there should be kind of an etiquette, actually, or something that people learn in clubs, and that's to have respect for people around you. But, you know, I have heard from quite a few people recently just of going to festivals. Now, you know, this could be just just related to festivals in Ireland. I don't know. But just how there's just a little bit more of a unfriendly, let's say, atmosphere there sometimes and people bumping into each other, not having as much respect for those around them. Uh, There's another thing that I've noticed as well, and I don't necessarily want to mimic what this sounds like, but there's a certain style of uh, what we call, I suppose, whooping that people do uh, to, but it to me, it's like something that you that you learn at a disco, you know, where there's you know, at, at age 12 or 13. But this thing seems to be kind of making its way into clubs now as well. And it's something that's kind of been, again, like everyone, you know, let, let people do what they want to do. But I just feel there's like, sometimes I think like clubs are where you kind of le- learn a few things. You know, you learn to just sort of kind of get absorbed into the music to... um um to switch off a little bit to some extent and maybe not to be kind of, I, I don't know. Again, I probably sound a little bit funny saying this, but it just it just feels like people are kind of inheriting these sort of behaviours and also, you know, these, these, you know, these whooping things that they're doing, that's kind of, that you would hear at the most commercial, the most commercial of events. I mean, you're going to hear these. I know, I know exactly what you mean. I, I mean, there was, <laughs> exactly. there was one, there was one time I was playing recently, um, about six months ago, and there's a couple of people that started this at the front. And I just said here, listen, I didn't take down the, the, the volume, but I just said, listen, don't, don't, please don't, don't do that. Do you know what I mean? Because it's just like, it's just like, because it could be happening at anything and this is the thing this is the making the distinction between mainstream music and underground music and in my to my mind that stuff doesn't belong 
in an underground club or at underground events. You know what I mean? Do what the hell you want at an underground event, but don't turn into this kind of like, you know, uh, you know, performing seal that's like whooping, you know, because this is what you do when you go to when you go to events. You don't have to do that. You know what I mean? You don't have to feel programmed to start doing this really lame whooping thing just because this is what you do. Switch off from that. Just enjoy it like, you know, and I'm not saying that they're not enjoying it by doing that but I just sort of what I'm seeing now is that they're they're you know, clubs being the education that they used to be and where you would never see that stuff happening. They're not there. They're not, they're not, they're not serving the same purpose that they used to now to communities. And now at clubs, uh, um, you know, after people have obviously gone through festival season and all the rest, people are at all this thing in the club. And I'm just going, I don't actually remember this in clubs before. And if I did, if I did, it's going back a long time. But now it seems to be a regular feature of nights. I don't know if it's something that goes more hand in hand with kind of like mainstream or slightly kind of fluffier music, but it does make its way to um yeah uh, anyway i don't want to ramble on too much about that but to get to the to get to the i suppose right to the center of what i feel the problem is and of course i know a lot of djs wouldn't say this but a big part of the problem in dance music now is the is the live nationization of dance music you know that's what we're seeing we've been seeing it for the last five or six years particularly um it's obviously been enabled by by other brands like uh, like boiler room um who i've got to say helped me in in my journey as well so I don't want to I don't want to knock any of these companies particularly they're doing what they do but they are very much crafting a product that um, is copied and pasted right across the world now you know and it's very much about big rooms being seen um, the cameras um, etc etc but very much around music style as well you know where some of these you know whether it is boiler room being the kind of the tastemakers and telling everyone you know one of my I suppose it's the only real beef I've actually had with Boiler Room because, like I said, I've 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 benefited from Boiler Room. But what I really don't like and what I actually resent is them putting techno under the umbrella of hard dance. I really do not like that. I don't like it at all. I think that you know, I think techno is the umbrella, you know, and 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 a lot of other things go underneath that, you know. But I think this idea that techno is almost kind of singularized as this kind of one genre under the umbrella of hard dance as this yeah, kind like of... Yeah, like a subgenre, actually. Yeah, I just, I really, I can't sort of get my head around that and I don't like it. Um, and I hope um, over time that um, Boiler Room... Boiler Room may reconsider um, the... The, the path they've taken with that, you know, and start to, um, yeah, start to kind of branch out in other ways. It's not to say that I, I don't know now, I don't check everything that they put out, but, you know, I'm sure not every techno set or techno related um, events that they put on comes under the hard dance um, banner. But at the same time, I do think they can do a little bit better uh, in, in that regards, because I think a lot of people need to know that techno isn't just about 
being hard and fast and abrasive. Yes, the, the you know, the roots of techno are, you know, rougher and a bit more industrial, but they're also very musical and very abstract and, you know, very diverse overall, you know, and I think that's something that needs to be celebrated a little bit more that perhaps isn't going to be celebrated as much when it is, like you said, almost being considered a subgenre um, within the, the, the hard dance uh, realm. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the the Live Nation thing, which you mentioned, I think is basically a hangover from the EDM phenomenon, which obviously was kind of ground zero in the States, but had its, um, had its, probably had its roots in sort of the Netherlands and a couple of other places around that kind of region. But like that having played out and just the volume of money that went into it and the, you know, the, temptation i guess that that had for companies like live nation and the fact that you know their strategy was to along with sfx to buy up every festival going and every large event going in the states and that eventually made its way over to europe and the uk and you know and that's essentially how it played out and the question was always going to be like where does that go when edm ceases to be this kind of commercial juggernaut and i think unfortunately it's sort of like the corporate kind of inertia there has sort of taken over what we would see as being the underground scene as well, to an extent anyway. I mean, what you're yeah. just describing about how, you know, small clubs are like have been edged out to an extent and the function that they have traditionally filled in the scene has been kind of superseded to an extent by festivals. Yeah, it really feels like they've kind of commodified the culture and it's it's it would be different if some of these companies and, you know, certainly partner companies in, in certain countries were actually running their own venues and clubs. I mean, there's nothing wrong with Live Nation and what they do generally. You know, they're putting on events that people want to go to, you know, and I don't necessarily just want to single out Live Nation, but I suppose they're a good reference at the same time. But I do, I just think that it's getting back to what we were talking about, just that, that balance, you know, I'd like to think that there's you know nine really strong months for clubs and then there's two or three months for festivals that's what i would like to see but if it is if it is tipped more to where it is now that's fine but it's just really important that we have a club scene that can that can function and operate hand in hand with that. Like what we saw here in Ireland over the summer was a lot of clubs effectively shutting for, for most of the summer, you know. Uh, I don't remember that happening, you know, uh, in, in a long, long time. In fact, I don't really remember that happening. You know, generally clubs were staying open and they wouldn't always be as busy. Sometimes, you know, you could be surprised and it could be really busy, busy some weeks. But what happened this year where venues essentially just shut down shop, I mean, I just thought that was like... Um, yeah, a kind of a real telltale sign of where we're at with this now. And I mean, clubs are not going to be able to sustain that type of pressure. You know, it's already difficult enough. You know, you're seeing it particularly in cities as well, where it's becoming increasingly difficult to hold your own under, you know, mounting rents and insurance and energy costs and all of the rest. Uh, to, to, to now put this pressure of not even being able to rely on, on on nine good months of the you know on venues to be able to rely on nine good months a year and now only really being able to rely on maybe six or seven you know it's um it's yeah it's because yeah don't know it's it's not it's not a great place to be what i'd like to actually see happen um and again it's not this isn't just to like be pointing the fingers but it's kind of to kind of ask ourselves you know, 
what what can we do? What can happen next? And I mean, I think a lot of those um, festival organizers or let's say partners of the likes of Live Nation and people who, um, you know, for instance, we have a, a promoter here in Dublin called uh, MCD who would work very closely with Live Nation and Festival Republic um, and are actually part of the same, the, the same company. Um, but they're... You know, they have some venues around the city, you know, they have a place called the Ambassador Theatre. I mean, I'd like to see that they could put that space into more use or that they would put somewhere like the Olympia to greater use. So what I would hope is, is that if these organisers are putting on club events and are essentially you know, getting the most out of club culture in the festival markets and in festival arenas, that they also support the the actual culture that this comes from, which means opening up their venues later into the night as well. So I'd like to see that MCD, for instance, would start using the Olympia later in, into the night. I mean, they used to use, um, there used to be an event there back in the past called Midnight at the Olympia, but now you'd be hard pressed to get an event after midnight. And again, I'm probably detouring here a little bit to more talking about clo- closing times and opening hours, but something we have needed in Ireland for many years are later opening times. You know, to be able to uh, to to give to give venues a better chance of actually making money. You know, but I think yeah, yeah, I'm I'm gonna ask you. I'm absolutely yeah. gonna ask you about all this stuff. So let's let's just part that for a second. I just got one more question about what we were just talking about with um, you know, the kind of the changes in the, the kind of behaviour events and stuff, which is the uh, phones in clubs issue. Where do you stand on phones in clubs? Like, would, would it be better if they were just like permanently banned? Oh, phones and clubs. Well, you know, as, as much as, and I mean, I was talking about not liking the, the kind of that style of whooping there earlier. I, at the same time, and, and pointing that out to somebody one time, but I don't, I don't really believe in kind of controlling people's behaviour too much. I think what most good clubs should have in these cases is a host or somebody that people meet on the door that kind of explains to groups and individuals that they don't like using uh, phones in the, in, in, in the venue and here's the reason why and they'd really appreciate if they could put their phone away. You know, I don't think... I mean, the way it works in Berlin is very effective. Um, and if that's the way it has to be, where you force people not to use their phones, um, so be it. But I think in some venues, you don't necessarily need to have a no phone policy because at some, some types of events, not everyone has their phone out, you know. So I think uh, I, I think enforcement doesn't always have to be as strict as like a, you know, complete no phones policy. But at the same time, I think it's kind of necessary too. So it depends from from club to club. I think that's down to the promoters and the, the club owner to sort of make that decision themselves, you know, but to have a kind of a, a blanket ban right across the scene. I, you know, the, the thing that we can kind of underestimate as well is that club footage d- does sort of help a, a, a gig live on in people's memories for, for longer too. Uh, it can help to promote the night. It can help to promote the DJs. Um, but I guess once it's sort of done sparingly as well, you know, I think when when your number one priority when you get into a club is to film, then maybe you need to kind of start asking questions as well, you know, to yourself. And um, I know like a lot of DJs bring people with them and get them to take footage. And that's, I mean, that's just the times we're in now that's kind of like fair enough but I think if you're going out to an event and you're spending most of your time filming and not talking to your friends and not meeting new people I think that's 
that's an issue. That's a problem, you, got, you know, because you're actually prioritizing the online socializing that may not even happen, you know, um, with, with others on Instagram um, over the socializing that you could be having with real life in real life with people there and then, you know, so. I think this is maybe sometimes where we have to kind of ask ourselves these questions. But again, it just comes back to this kind of whole question around us being able to control technology or technology controlling us, you know, and I think this is the kind of the everyday battle or struggle that many of us kind of face now is, is how we kind of um, how we can, tr- can control technology rather than get into these kind of habits that the first thing we do when we go into a club and start filming, you know, it's uh it's uh, yeah, we've got into a lot of habits that are definitely enabled by better technology and new social media platforms that are kind of very conducive to this behavior, you know, so. Yeah, yeah, I mean, absolutely. And it's such a huge challenge that society faces, basically. But anyway, just go back to your comments about opening hours. So um, obviously you've been involved in the Give Us the Night campaign in Ireland going back to the mid 2000s and you've talked about that a lot in interviews but I want to I mean you're often referred to as much well almost as much of an act as an activist as you are as a DJ so I mean that's always in the in, like introduction to an interview with you it's always an all sharp like DJ and activist so how do you see yourself in terms of like what you kind of contribute I guess yeah yeah I, I mean I sometimes have to ask myself that because you can kind of get a little bit dizzy with all of this sometimes almost or just a little it gets it gets quite I mean it gets quite intense it really does I mean I think when we started the campaign and it's going back you know mid mid 2000s I mean it's it's uh, actually we recently reached adulthood or we're just about there now Uh, 18 years this campaign has been going on and off you know a long long time Um, so the when I started, I mean, I don't refer to myself as an activist, but I suppose I am. Uh, at the same time, I am doing it voluntarily, but it does feel like a job and it feels like more than a full time job because it's not something you can just leave down. You can't just start at a certain time and end. There's no end in sight, really, sometimes in terms of the the what's ahead of us now, you know, because in the early days, it was very much around opening hours and, you know, and um, better licensing conditions. But now it's just opened out into so many different areas and so many different things that we need to do. So many actions that, 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 that have come from the Nighttime Economy Task Force report. So we're in the implementation stages of those and we're, we're working with, with officials in government and across a number of government departments to make a lot of those things happen. But it's definitely n- our, 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 our aims are not as singular as they used to be. So in the early days, I suppose it was about learning about you know what the issues were in the first place because i mean licensing is one of the most you know it's it, it's incredibly complex and our licensing system as well and there's there's you know back yeah could you, could you just can you just yeah. give us a, sorry to interrupt you but could you just give us a um like an idea about what the situation was when the campaign started so 
my understanding of it is there was a there was an attempt to restrict licenses further, which initially kind of got you going on this. But can you just give us an idea about like what what it was and then what what got you started in the first place? Yeah, so so at the time there was talk about bringing the times in Dublin back to half one. So at that time they were going till two thirty. Uh, three o'clock but there was other venues in town that were going till half three four o'clock and then there were parts of the city as well um, there, there's a strip called Leeson Street in town which traditionally would have been going to later again you know that was the place you went later later now it wouldn't have been the kind of they wouldn't have been kind wouldn't have been the kind of place that I would have gone to but they would have had wine licenses and you would have been able to go to like you know six or seven o'clock um, there so we kind of had tiered or staggered clothes in place but at the time and I only found this out a long time later there was a shortage of um um, um, of garden numbers so we didn't have enough police on the streets at the time now we didn't know that this was the reason what we were being told and what was being reported were, was that public order fences were on the rise in, in in the city but often when that happens I suppose there are reasons for that and that's because these things are able to just happen because there's not um, a, an ample amount of, uh, of police on the streets so that's what was happening then quite often you find out the real reasons for things many years on or you know months on or years on or whatever it might be at this point all we knew was that they wanted to shut uh, venues down early and it appeared that somebody had fed this story to a Sunday newspaper at that point we we were chatting about this some other like-minded people at the time including body tonic they they would have been heavily involved at the time and we uh, we set up a campaign within a few days I mean I started a petition I think that night on the Sunday night that gathered momentum I think it had up over 20,000 signatures within a few days at that time the Irish Nightclub Owners Association had gone to court um, and the guards backed down with their with their proposal um, and their request to the judge to to shut down venues in that, in that area of the city centre because it was the main district in Dublin city centre so it's where the most nightlife kind of happened in the country essentially so for, for the times to get pulled back there would have been really kind of setting a precedent uh, not only for the rest of Dublin but for the rest of the country so we really couldn't let it happen and you know when that got when that idea sort of fell apart I guess it was it was like a a victory for us and we did feel that after doing this within a few days you know what could we do in a few months or in six months or a year but um but there were you know lots of other forces at play and lots of other um complications i suppose would be the best way of putting this in in relation to just having a very kind of clear um updated reform to to the licensing laws there's a, a lot of vested interests you know there are a lot of people who are put out by the idea of change and you know we're still kind of up against that to some extent here in Ireland not not to the point that it was then and I'd like to think that this reform can be quick and clean that when this bill comes to the to the Oireachtas to our House of Parliament that it will be quick and clean and we'll just get it through fast but back then um, trying to get licensing. Um, Let me just jump in there and ask you specifically. Yeah, the nature of that opposition that you mentioned was stronger back in the sort of mid two thousands. Is that just a, a sort of underlying conservatism amongst businesses and amongst sort of the population generally, or was there something a bit more to it than that? Um, 
Well, there was a few. We we had a we had a much bigger um, publican. We had a bigger pub industry and a bigger publican lobby back then, and our laws are very vague in that they don't really distinguish between a standard pub and a a nightclub, for instance. You know, so and a, a back in about the year two thousand. Um, Pubs essentially went neck and neck with with um, with nightclubs, uh, late pubs or late bars. So they were they were they were able to go later again than their normal time, which would have been twelve thirty or whatever it was at, at, at the weekend. So that really started to hurt nightclubs then. So by the time we came along and we wanted to change things, and the nightclub owners association at the time wanted to change things too, the pubs had now kind of strengthened their kind of their their stranglehold i suppose on the on trades to the point now where they had a significant stake in the late night market too which they didn't have before so always when things have been changing for other kind of neighboring so uh, neighboring industries let's say for want of a better term like restaurants or nightclubs as things start to take off for other types of licensed premises that's when pubs start to get a little bit concerned let's say and always because they have a, a bigger lobby than anybody else they can kind of pile on the pressure and they, they, they've probably been the number one obstacle in the way of change but at the same time they're protecting their interests and situations in different parts of the country can be different to what they are in, in cities there's less footfall let me just ask you to clarify that or let me just check that i've understood it correctly so the pub lobby didn't want venues other venues to be able to open later is that is that correct well it's not it's yes or no i don't want to say that they're the only see because the, the yeah, yeah sure 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 I I I I don't want to the, the vintners the vintners associations and I got to say we've probably developed a better we didn't have any relationship with them in the old days we have developed a relationship of sorts with both vintners groups now and I'd say they've they've uh, loosened up a lot more to the idea of change and I don't want to point the fingers at them because actually probably the big only them. We should point the fingers at them for some, but you know that's the path for some of this. But that's the path as well. We also have a you know the uh, health lobby and you know a health department who have always been very anti change or liberalisation, even like tiny changes. You know they they've never wanted to test anything, to pilot anything. They've always equated you know the the alcohol problems um, of the country with you know the the additional hours that people may be staying out in a club or an or a pub or a nightclub but you know the stats now speak for themselves there's something like 0.5% of all alcohol consumption that takes um that happens in the country happens through a late night venue or a, like a, a dance club or a nightclub, you know. So the so in terms of our drinking capacity or how much how much alcohol is consumed within the late night industry, I mean it's minuscule. It's 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 not. We're not a problem. We're not a pro- like what's actually happened and how policy has changed is that it's it's pushed a lot more people to drinking at home, and that's that's where the that's where the growth is now, and that's only going to continue as well. It's it's actually falling in the 
on trade while it's been rising in the off trade. And, you know, uh, with all of the additional restrictions that, that health authorities, you know, the health department, the HSE and, and lobbyists have been have been determined to, to bring about and have, have implemented, it has now resulted in this rise in consumption at home rather than those going out. But overall, alcohol consumption is dropping in Ireland. And I think we are reaching a point now where the resistance won't be as fierce from the, the health lobby. The resistance isn't as fierce from the from, from other parts of the on-trade, most notably the pubs. And I, I'd like to think that pubs can benefit from this as well. I mean, I think they can get the most out of this and perhaps um, welcome the idea of, of opening later and, and having a little bit more flexibility because where else would you have it? I, I can't think of many countries, no countries that I know of really where pubs and clubs don't work together hand in hand. They're essentially part of the same industry. But here there's always been this sort of like this, this I wouldn't say conflict because we've always been like, a, a you know, a, a tiny industry in comparison to them. But there's always been this feeling that they just they, they, they just won't let us sort of out of their grasp. You know, it's it's almost like a, it's um, uh, like I've said to them before, you know, like just they should just worry about what they do instead of always worrying about what others are doing. You know, particularly us, considering we're such a, a small industry. And I think they can reap the benefits of of licensing changes when they do change, because it will mean. See, what they've tried to do is they've tried to in ways. And when I say they, I mean the states, the, you know, some of the other lobbyists that I've, men, I've mentioned as well. They're, they're trying to control human behavior to the point that it's having a really damaging cultural and social impact, you know, because um, because the conditions and the laws and regulations that are in place just aren't fit for purpose. And for that reason, a lot of people are rejecting nightlife. And for that reason, a lot of people are going away for weekends, are spending extended times away in, at summer, aren't even considering their local venues and are buying festival tickets. I mean, the list goes on, you know, so we have to give people a reason to go out at night. And by putting these, you know, strict conditions in place where you have to be out by 2 or 3 a.m. and you're getting shouted out of the place. I mean, who wants that? I think when you're like 18 or 19 you accept that but you know when you start getting into your 20s you you start resenting that and going here I'm not having that you know so it's like uh, if you're a promoter you kind of have to put up with some of that stuff you know but um, but if you're a patron if you're someone that's going out you might kind of go well what, what, what's even here? I mean, there's not even that many, you know, great clubs here anymore. Why not just go over to Manchester or London or Berlin or wherever it might be, you know? And um, and more and more people are doing that. Not only are they doing that, they're they're actually starting to 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 leave the country in their droves, you know, because there's just not enough here for them to 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 um to 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 both do at the weekends, but also to get involved in as as a profession or a career or a, or a serious hobby, you know. So um, it's not to say that Ireland is a is because I I am very deeply aware, in fact, that the the kind of the negative picture that we paint of this country sometimes may give people the impression that just Ireland is a really bad place to be. But, you know, what we do have are the people. And I say this a lot. I mean, Irish people are are great. I mean, we, we, we you know, uh, on its night, you know, there, there are a few better places in, in Europe than, you know, some, some of the destinations around, around Ireland. You know, there's a real, there's just a great party spirit in Ireland. There always has been, but we're, we, we haven't been given what we deserve. And I think hopefully soon when we get that, we can start to come into our own. But, you know, it's one thing changing the legislation. You know, there's, there's, there's other kinds of cultural shifts that will 
take a little bit of time to change, both with, you know, at various levels of kind of authority, you know, people that actually are there to kind of uphold the law and to um, make sure that all regulations are adhered to, etc. I mean, there are some people, you know, that won't be so keen on some of the changes that come in. Then there's other issues in relation to sound and noise. I don't know what what way some of these things can be resolved, considering that a lot of venues are having problems even now under the current conditions. So there is still a lot to be decided and figured out. But, you know, that's that's why we're committed to this at the level that we are now, which makes this a an everyday occupation of ours. You know, it's 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 busy, you know, and it has to be busy because if it's not and these conversations are happening without us, then I don't know where we'll be in six or 12 months when these uh, when these licensing laws change, you know, everything, all of these changes ideally have to happen in tandem, you know. So that's why we have to coordinate a lot of things and just make sure nothing is overlooked, because if things are overlooked, then somebody in an office somewhere decides that and the conversation never even has happened, you know. So we need to make sure that more of these conversations are happening officially that are involving, you know, groups of stakeholders, including including ourselves, um, and that they're all noted and preferably reports are made and that policies, new policies are formed. And because without that, it'll just move, you know, back into that sort of world that we're in now, which is just all about vagueness and, you know, one or two people who invariably are just going to make the decisions that we don't want and clamping down on nightlife and making sure that more venues shut, you know, so. Yeah. Okay. So one of the things that you're advocating for is the kind of idea of representatives which is to say night czars and like the the only experience i have of of this concept is in london with amy lame who has um not been the most popular uh <laughs> representative for the for the nighttime industry so could just make the case for night czars to me please convince me of their utility well you know what i i i'm i'm I wouldn't say that I'm on the fence. It's something we've advocated for. I think if the conditions are right in a certain city or town or whatever it might be, then it is appropriate to have a night star or a nice um, nighttime advisor or nightmare or whatever you want to call it. But in where Amy is, for instance, in London, I mean, I think the issue that Amy would have in London or London has with this position is that it's just so damn big. You know, it's really, really big. And I think for one person like Amy to be able to keep on top of everything that's happening in London nightlife, you know, is is going to be a struggle, you know. So, um, I mean, Sadiq Khan was, you know, has been very supportive. He's helped set up the role. Um, I mean, there's a lot of good things that Amy has done there. I can can understand people's frustration, though, when they see a venue shutting down. But I mean, what people need to understand about this is Amy doesn't get to make those decisions. She gets to make a case, but she doesn't get to make those decisions, you know. Let me jump in and ask you, like, what so what do you see the exact role and responsibility? Like, what does what does a good night are? What's an effective night are look like? Well, uh, well, and if, yeah, well, and, I mean, it's, it's, it's a challenging role in ways, because on one hand, you're going to have to be up for meetings early in the morning but at the same time you're going to have to be out at night going around to these venues and I think that's where, where where the challenge lies you know that you need to be engaged with the people who are running these venues with the events themselves and
and you need to be talking to many people within the conversation, whether that's, you know, um, whether that's the police, whether that's uh, those working in the council, whether that's those in transport. Um, I mean, the, the, the list goes on. Residents, I mean, you're essentially going to be a mediator at times as well. You're going to have to be speaking to experts in the, you know, the, the noise control unit. I mean, you're going to, uh, or, or at least uh, experts who would be dealing with the noise control unit. Uh, generally, I mean, I found that a lot of people that make these decisions, even where we're at now, we don't get to liaise necessarily directly with the planners who decide, you know, this venue is going to, you know, is going to change into a hotel, for instance. Or, but same way, you know, we wouldn't have a direct, um, we wouldn't have a direct uh, communication with those in the noise control unit. So really, you know, the kind of people we'd be speaking to would be venues and, you know, their consultants and they'd be telling us, right, we've been we've been uh, given this new condition where we have to keep the noise at this level and it's just not manageable at all, you know. So that's where sometimes, I mean, I'd say now unofficially we're kind of doing the job of of a nightmare or nighttime advisor or, uh, you know we are the kind of advocacy group here so i'd so i would say that it's absolutely necessary like i don't even think it's a case of having to make the case for it i think the the case is is that or the the question is is whether or not that individual should work directly for the local authority or not i think you you are put yourself in a much stronger position okay so it can work three ways okay so the 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 first way the way like um amy or sasha lord in manchester work is is they have been they have been appointed by the 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 mayor and they have a direct relationship and communication with the mayor. And when they need something, they can go 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 to that person and they can say yes or no or whatever. That's the best place to be. OK. And then at the same time, then they can engage with the with the um, with the industry as well. And in a sense, they're sort of somewhere in the middle. On the other hand, which seems to be the, the the route that they want to take here, possibly, first of all, the local authority here in Ireland, local authorities here in Ireland don't look after licensing, which makes things a little bit strange. The courts look after licensing. So it's not um, also the local authority don't look after transports. They don't look after policing. So if you're appointed by the local authority and you're working for the local authority, you're not you're not appointed by somebody like Sadiq Khan or Andy Burnham anymore. You're 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 now you're now appointed by a manager, a, a, an unelected ma- a city manager who who isn't going to be able to do much for you. So that's the, you know, so from my perspective and the campaigns, we would be a little bit worried about the, you know, how much how much power that that person will have in that role. So that's why we would like to, whoever is, it does take on these roles and it looks like to be anywhere up to eight nighttime czars or nighttime managers or advisors across Ireland appointed. We'd like to just know that they can still, well, first of all, what they're going to be able to do. And this is where we need to ask the local authority, what are they willing to do? You know, because at least we know with Andy Burnham or Sasha Lor, or, or at least Andy Burnham or Sadiq Khan, that they were up for it to start with. You know, in some areas, in some uh, in some cities, whatever the country is, the you know, you have to push, push and push. But the local authority actually don't really want it. Whereas in the cities that I've mentioned, Manchester and London, the local authorities or the mayors did want it. So there are the differences. 
that's that's where a group like us comes into our own in that we're an independent group we're a volunteer group we're not paid by anyone no one's putting any pressure on us be it venues be it the council and we can say and do what we want essentially for, for the greater good you know so that's why I really value our independence here and not being in a paid role gives us even more independence in that regard so I think there's a few different ways of doing it but I think if you are going to set up that role ultimately you have to know how much power that person has and you have to have some kind of undertaking from the council before that role essentially commences and starts to know that you're, you're going to have that support um, uh, and there definitely obviously has to be terms of reference to you know to, to everything that's going on from like is it going to be a department is it going to be an individual role I mean how many hours is it a week or you know do you have to start you know is it just a nine to five or are you you know are you working later into the evening and at night and I'm sure some nighttime advisors might actually like the idea of just working office hours but I think that's where some make kind of run into problems you know because i think you know stakeholders that are involved yeah i mean that's got to be a key part of the role right surely yeah 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 absolutely absolutely i mean i think and i mean as well i mean there's a lot of other there's a lot of other particularly around safety now as well and i mean safety and transport as well are both interlinked as well and that's why we have to make lots of different things work you know even security standards as well you know like the the nighttime industry was was you know was just uh, in fact it was one of the most badly affected industries overall in terms of the retention of staff through covid i mean we lost so many staff over covid in ireland particularly you know we had a lot of workers that left ireland who would have worked in late night and nighttime venues you know and that applies to security as well so we, we always have to keep our our eyes on that that security standards or standards across the board you know um of those working in in venues isn't dropping you know but particularly when it comes to safety as well i mean i think there's always kind of new trends and new threats i suppose that are that are developing that we have to keep our eyes out for and i think it's really important that venues are always kind of vigilant of um of what's happening um as they have to be and need to be but that they're training their staff too you know and that's definitely one of the things i'm happy with in in dublin um and ireland as well and and the what we're doing here at the nighttime economy and the task force is that we we have been helping to give training sessions to to staff members and people involved in venues in fact there's a, a lady called joe cox brown from, from nottingham who, who helped to give some of those courses and training you know and i think that needs to be more requirements um of venues now rather than something that they just can do if they want to or not you know definitely we need standards to uh to, to, to rise, you know, right across the board and that it's not just the, the, the venues or venue owners that are more interested than others. You know, this should be a requirement and it probably should be um, tied into, you know, licensing, licensing um, conditions as well, you know, that you, that you will ensure that your, your staff have the correct training, you know, so. Yeah, 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 totally. So as you mentioned, like a, yeah, a big problem with uh well, a common problem anyway with with these sorts of positions is that there's a, a lack of power associated with them, and seemingly people attach um, a lot of at least symbolic responsibility to these roles. But, it, but in a way, that's actually quite unfair, as you as you described, right? Because I mean, if you're not able to materially affect change, then it's it's a bit it's not really on to be then judged on your inability to keep X venue open, right? But um, 
But it seems like you in Ireland have a pretty um, a pretty effective minister of culture who obviously does have power, like real legislative power. So like Catherine Martin, yeah, seems to be pretty good. Is is is, is she good? Am I right about that? Yeah, yeah, I think Catherine Martin has been has been has been great actually since she's come in. I mean, we were really happy that a green minister took took on that portfolio because you know, sometimes the I mean, I mean sometimes you know yourself like a lot of ministers can go into roles that they have no previous um no no previous experience in, but our minister Catherine Martin is a is a musician. I mean, she used to busk on Grafton Street. I mean, she knows about music and she respects what it is that we do. I mean, she doesn't have a background in electronic music, but she knows and she's definitely learnt more about us um, since since she's come into office as well. But no, from day one, I mean, we just we just developed a really good, strong relationship with her, you know, and she's not, you know, she's not too big to, you know, to come and talk to us. And, you know, she doesn't, there's been no airs and graces with her, you know, and we've had quite a few meetings with her. I mean, we've met her at kind of other types of engagements and meetings as well. And yeah, we've, 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 um, I mean, we've even, when, when we've been going in, in and out of the doll sometimes, I mean, there recently we kind of just casually bumped into her and we're about to have a chat with her, you know, and it's like, um, yeah, I, I really value the kind of relationships that we've built, um, with some public representatives and ministers and, and people who are kind of quite close to this, uh, to, to these particular issues, because it's one thing changing, you know, licensing, but, you know, really we want to kind of change the culture and we want to make sure that when people talk about music and the arts and culture and all of these things, that they also think of dancing, they also think of electronic music, they also think of club culture. You know, it's really important for us that that, that cultural shift, um, well, we, we, we know that that shift is already happening, but we, we want to really see it through you know and um and i definitely think the the minister she's helping us to do that um and and i think there's more she's ready to do as well i'll be yeah i I think she'll she'll be she'll be a hard minister to replace i think when she goes you know so um um so yeah i want to really make the most of the time now that that that, that she has in office so yeah you you mentioned that there's a, a licensing bill going through the going through parliament at the moment and I believe there's also a, a, a pilot scheme going on or, or about to start. Is that is that right? It covers some of the stuff that we've been talking about. Um, I'm not sure which pilot. I mean, there's a lot of pilots. There's a lot of, I mean, the, the government love a, a, a pilot because it's a, it's a great way to kind of do something but not fully commit, you know? Right, um, right. Yeah. And, 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 you know, once that pilot's over, it may, may never happen again, you know? So I think... Um, but I think there's so conditions to using the word pilot that nearly everything is a pilot, and and you're sometimes just like, well, no, it's just a scheme, like you know. But anyway, it's um, no, there. I mean, there's a lot of stuff. I'm trying to think what particular pilot you might be referring to because there are a few things on the go. I mean, they did give funding. It was, it to, was written up in DJ Mag. This is the the one I'm talking oh, about. Oh, oh, sorry, sorry. Apologies. Yes, this is the the basic income scheme for artists. Yeah. So um, we kind of came into the conversation about that quite late on in the day. I kind of wish we'd been involved a little bit earlier. So, um, but still, even at that, it appears like there was a significant amount of 
um, awardees who, who were musicians. Now, I don't know what the, the, the breakdown will be, but essentially um, this basic income for artists, it will mean that um, that artists will be paid, I think, you know, over what the kind of the standard social welfare or dole um, payment is. I think it's up at about 325 euros a week. Um, so, so all of the successful um all, all of the uh, uh, successful applicants, at least, um, will yeah are are, are going to are, are going to get that now. And I think that was I think all the yeah all the successful applicants were informed a few days ago or two days ago or something like that. So they'll it was quite competitive. I think there were somewhere close to oh I think there like in and around 10,000 or more people applied for it and that was kind of whittled down then to in the end oh, well I heard varying reports maybe of about was it like three or four thousand and then there were two thousand selected in the end and apparently it was um, th- those people were picked randomly then so you had to you had to first of all you had to first of all be accepted and be confirmed to be an artist you know there was a there was a checklist there was a you know there was a fairly uh lengthy um application uh process that you had to go through uh to first of all be accepted and make it to the to the next stage and then apparently it was it was then about like a, a lottery essentially you know so um so i still actually so have to speak this, to let me just ask did that also come from the same government department yeah it came from the culture department so i mean we definitely have to credit the campaign for the arts here and and others i think maybe even equity may have been involved with it as well the the the, the actors union i mean they there, there have been groups that have been pushing for this for many years so um Sometimes a piece of legislation can go through, but it could have been on the department's desk for, you know, a number of years before this. But it must be said, you know, Catherine Martin did push this, you know, from from the moment she got in, you know, that was something she wanted to get over the line. And it was in the programme for government alongside the other nighttime economy commitments that the government made as well, or nighttime culture, as I prefer to put it, to be honest. But um certainly in relation to her department so uh yeah so so it is it's the same department you know it's it's a it's a it's a big department i mean it's a it's a big it's a big portfolio i mean it includes tourism and culture and the arts and uh sport i mean there's a there's a lot I mean, there is a there is a junior minister, or minister for state in there that also looks after some stuff but but generally Catherine martin's a very busy lady you know she's got a, she's doing a lot there is this a kind of a policy shift or is this more is this being taken more seriously under the current government than it has been previously yeah yeah i think the arts are in general you know i think the i think there's been a lot more financial support uh, than there was i think during covid we saw that as well i mean i think the minister uh fought really hard for that you know and certainly i, I think what probably needs to be mentioned here as well is is just as Catherine Martin came into government um she was also in a in in, in a leadership battle with uh with Eamon Ryan who's who's like who who's the who who remains on I mean I think it was very very tight actually in terms of the vote um but there Catherine Martin is, is still Green I, Party yeah the, the, the Green Party but I mean I think Catherine Martin you know she she definitely you know, holds a lot of weight in the in 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 the Green Party, you know, and and in government actually, um, definitely when she was coming in. So I think um, I think she probably would have put forward, you know, her main sort of um, 
her, her main requirements and, and, and what had to happen if, if, if she was culture minister, you know. So um, and, and as that has sort of um, as that has continued, well, maybe there wasn't. When I say that, I mean, when when ministries are decided, I mean, I think often people are finding out within like a day or two or three and then they're just in there. But I know from early on in her tenure, she was, um, you know, she she definitely kind of put her foot down on a, on a, in, in a, a lot of times, especially during COVID as well. You know, um, I think if it had been left to the government, I think venues and our industry would have been shut for even longer. But I, you know, I do know that the, the the minister was 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 really trying hard to get us get us opened you know and i think it's i think it's really easy to blame politicians and say they're all bad but um but 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 we know that you know there's there, there's a lot out there who have who have who have been fighting our corner you know and um and for that reason I, yeah i mean the, like the the reason the reason i'm asking you these questions really is to try and compare it yeah. to what happened in the uk and it does not compare what well, the uk does not compare favorably to any of this in terms of like the covid response for artists and musicians and all the rest of it and you know like like you say like there are there are good politicians out there yeah there's only so much there's only so much they can do as well and I mean, like there were times where we were disgusted with what was going on. But, it, you know, we couldn't blame the minister for it because there were other, you know, more senior, more senior departments that were that were making the decisions, you know, and, and, and the same the same stands for for anything else as well, whether it's whether it's budgetary, whether it's, you know, other types of policy that uh, that other other um Departments can overrule, you know, even if we're talking about licensing reform, I mean, health can overrule justice and elements of that as well. And for that, you know, and, and some of those conversations and how some of that um, that pans out are essentially not very transparent either you know like we, we won't know the conversations that were had between health and justice um before this reform goes through but we we, we will know and we do know that health will have had a significant uh, input um into these licensing laws you know how 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 far justice and maybe to some a smaller extent culture are able to push back against that I don't know but we still have to see the bill but what what we do see sometimes is you know a minister and a department who are pushing for us but there's only so hard they can push sometimes you know when they're essentially overruled but I think we're in the best position that we've ever been in and a lot of it has to do with youth you know it's a, it's a younger profile of politician you know we're you know even our justice minister now Helen McEntee I mean she's half the age of our last justice minister you know and th- this makes a big dis- difference um, she's a woman as well Catherine Martin's a woman you know and it's women who are actually making the biggest difference for us uh, as, as a campaign and it's, it's something I want to really stress um over time, I mean, we're not at the end of this yet. You know what I mean? But it's definitely something I want to um, highlight more and more um, as we get closer to that time as well. Is that it's been strong, strong female politicians who have been making the difference for us. You know, and we really, really, you know, I, I, I can't overstate that. You know, it's just been invaluable input. You know. From- yeah. Um. So, last question on this: like, what is the sort of ideal? outcome for this kind of legislative process for you and for the campaign generally like uh, kind of like of the kind of headline things that could happen 
Well, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, I think one of the things is we need to stop the rot when it comes to venue shutting, you know. So really, we want to kind of seal that hole, you know, and I'm hoping that when we change the licensing laws and we can extend opening hours and hopefully cut the licensing costs, which are scandalous. Um, you know, we have the scandalous system in place now. I won't bore you with old details, but, you know, you, you have some venues that are paying anywhere up to 140000 a year just for the for the privilege of being able to open you know, to be able to open after normal pub hours. It's it's a crazy system, you know, and we're hoping that's going to that, that system is going to be gone because if you don't pay these fees, you can't open, you know, so and you can't take a risk on an event. Um if I wanted to open if I wanted to put on an event now in a club next week and went and went along to them now, they'll say we can't do it. And I'd say, why? Well, I'd know why, but let's just say I was just a randomer saying why. And they go, oh, well, we needed to go and buy our late license in, in court last week and we haven't done that. So, and we're not in court again until next month because the next hearing is next month. So sorry, we have to turn down that party or we have to turn down that booking, you know, and that's the kind of rigid system uh, that we're kind of operating under now. So if we can get rid of that. Uh, that will be a start. Um, and then if we can just start to see more venues opening, you know, we need to make the business model a little bit more inviting for about young entrepreneurs, for collectives, for existing business owners, because, you know, there are also nightclub operators or venue owners in the game who would happily open an extra venue or two or three if they could. The, the trends has been for places to shut rather than open. What we want to see is more places opening um, and more, yeah, I'm, I mean, just more good stories. What, what I'd like to see happen more than anything, actually, because I think cities will look after themselves. I mean, Dublin's not in a great place at the moment. I mean, we're running out of space. I think some of the better nightclub spaces or venues may pop up kind of on the, on the outskirts of the city or in industrial areas or business parks, retail parks, these are the kind of places that some bigger spaces may have to have to develop now in terms of like large club spaces. But I think what we, I'd really love to see is a new kind of venue circus develop around the country. I mean, we used to have, a, you know, back in the show band era, we had these like all these ballrooms and, you know, dance halls and we had like lots of standalone venues and then like after that there was kind of nightclubs a lot of nightclubs transitioned from the old ballrooms uh, but now a lot of them are gone you know a lot of our old cinemas are gone a lot of our old theatres have gone you know so the next stage really would be about multi-purpose and multi-use venues we would like you know if they are going to be multi-use venues that music is very much at the heart of that as are you know late hours as well but we do need to see more kind of multi multi-use, multi-purpose venues uh, in communities, you know, that are for leisure and culture and entertainment uh, activities, you know, because now uh, kind of when a lot of people talk about community hubs or if you're to talk to someone in the government about a community hub or community facility, invariably it turns into these kind of like enterprise hubs or remote working hubs and all this, you know, all, all these purposes that are very much about the daytime and about work rather than about you know, fun and leisure and the industry that's attached to that, you know. The government sort of understand us or connect with us is when we use the word economy, you know. So, you know, for a lot of these spaces to be sustainable, to be able to make money while also serving the community, I mean, there has to be a model for that again and it has to be facilitated by local authorities who, to be honest, are the, are the 
are the real ball breakers in a lot of this, you know, um, but also by the by the courts and by better legislation, you know. Uh, so I think once we can change the legislation, hopefully start to change policy in relation to planning as well, uh, because it's one thing with licensing, you know, you could get a license tomorrow. Well, you might have to pay for it now, pay a good bit of money for a license. But the next thing would be actually getting permission to open a space, you know. So the big hesitancy with local authorities now is to to open licensed premises. You know, they're really, they really do not like permitting the use of a space for people to drink alcohol in. They don't like this. They're just really, really against it. You know, and a big part of the reason for that, at least, is because neighbours quite often are, um, are are objecting to this. You know, so in the past we had, we had, you know, we had communities where a local pub or venue or whatever it might be, or even a GAA club, including a pub. Um, GAA is like our, you know, our, our, our one of our national sporting organisations, so hurling and Gaelic football. So you'd have like a GAA clubhouse or sports ground in, you know, in most parts, most towns and cities around the, around the country. So they would invariably have like... Um, you know, spaces within them and, you know, they'd, they'd have a bar and stuff like that as well. So most of those have stayed open, but kind of other types of leisure facilities and pubs and venues and stuff have been shutting down. But now as we start to build new, well, we're not building nearly fast enough here in Ireland at the moment, but any sort of large scale developments that I see or any kind of strategic planning that's happening around the country, particularly in Dublin and on the outskirts, none of it includes venues or anything in terms of leisure or culture that occurs or, you know, happens in the evening or at night time, you know. And a lot of the hesitancy here is that they, that they would include licensed, a licensed premises or people drinking. And I think I think it says a lot about the growing intolerance in Ireland towards people having fun. Um, I, I think like in, in a lot of ways, we might think that we're we're all modern in that, but I think we've become a lot more in, intolerant as a society. I think that's also because the country is becoming a lot more built up, especially now in, in, in cities like Dublin too. And, you know, there's people that would have gone out 10, 20 years ago, who are now the first people that will be complaining about activity in the city. So I think it's, um, I think we've got a lot of, um, I don't want to say problems ahead. We've a lot of challenges ahead, but I do think that we can't half do things. So we have to make sure we get everything right, including noise policy. But I, at the moment, I would see councils as being the, because they're kind of a law unto themselves, really, you know. I know they're meant to be the main kind of local authority, essentially. I mean, the the, the term is, 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 in their, is in their title, but at the same time, they need to, I think, start sticking to a better kind of more standardised approach, you know, that will hopefully be um, su- suggested to them by the by, by the housing and uh, departments, you know, who, who would oversee local government as well, because it just seems like in some parts of the country, they're just really, really strict and don't want to see anything happen, you know. So, so yeah, we just need a little bit more consistency, you know, and luckily we're in a place where we're, we're talking to more of these people. So, so we're trying to affect change nationwide. We're trying to affect change here in Dublin, but we're also keeping our eyes on other particular locations as well, because there, there's, there's a, a distinct lack of consistency across the country. So listen, we've bitten off a lot here, you know, so this isn't going to this isn't going to end anytime soon. 
But once we change the licensing stuff um, and then hopefully better planning policies start to come into place and we actually start to protect venues as well, because that's the other thing we want to protect venues. Um, hopefully we can start to create venues as well and hopefully we can get um, uh, councils and even developers to, to, to start committing to, 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 uh, to building you know, venues. I, I know that's maybe not a, a popular concept with some people or idea that a that a that a developer builds um builds ven- builds a venue you know in order to 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 be able to put in like a larger development in a particular area but if they don't you know it's it's up to it's up to communities like ours to be able to have the money to do that you know and to be able to get the permission to do it you know which comes with all sorts of other challenges so i think if we ca- there's not just one way to do this you know and if we can get developers to commit to providing spaces because that's all we need at the end of the day you know yourself we just need a room we just need a large room in some cases you know but this could mean even going down the scale not even large scale developments but like if for a hotel development for instance where the developer would ensure that there's an entertainment space in the basement or that there's some sort of room somewhere maybe even on the rooftop you know above the gym or something where where events could happen you know these are the these are the kind of um, options that should be given to developers by the local authority so this is the we're getting closer to that now in Dublin with the Dublin City Council Development Plan uh, the Dublin City Development Plan that's coming soon so I'm um, and you know there's a lot of our work has gone into helping form some of these policies so we're hoping that once that happens in Dublin that that can give some you know that can kind of nudge other local authorities around the around the country to kind of follow as well because we have to we like I said we have to stop the rot now We're, we've lost way too many venues we've lost eighty four percent of dance spaces in the last twenty years or so and we need to get some of those back so um, and we need more community venues as well venues that aren't just all driven by the sale of alcohol you know we need we need spaces that aren't as uh, as reliant on alcohol sales as well which could mean that there's you know some state funding. Um, but maybe it just could be that there's, you know, maybe not not as much re- not as much that has to be paid back on the building. Maybe they might have a, a deal with the local authority who might own the building. Um, but definitely, we need to um, we need to have more collective kind of driven or community driven venues in place where it's not just the local publican turned venue owner who doesn't really care about music we need we need music people actually running music venues you know definitely in ireland that's a problem now we need we need more of that so yeah yeah okay i mean it's as you said like it's a it's a wide-ranging thing and yeah you guys deserve a lot of credit for for the progress that you made so far and i hope it thanks paul hands out the way you hope it Thanks will. Um, so the other the other term that you're referred to as, as well as a DJ and an activist, is an educator. Yeah. So you teach a DJing course and have done for many years, I believe. So um, yeah. And I wanted the, there's a specific question I want to ask you about this, which is in a previous interview, I I saw you talking about the differing demands of people wanting to get into music now and how you know the kind of image side of it and the whole social side is much more important now and people are having to think about those kind of things as they as soon as they get started really if they want to you know be successful so the my question was like has that translated through into the kind of expectations of the students that turn up to your course like are, are people coming in there wanting to know about that side of it too or, or is it just purely a interest in music that's driving there um wanting to go yeah 
I mean, I find that some of those who are better on social media and who are more comfortable with that side of things are already working on it already. You know, they're already in the groove of that, you know, and they, they take to it quite naturally, you know, and there's, there's, there's obviously, there are obviously things that we can show them, but I think by and large, most people come to the DJ course to learn primarily about DJing and learn about DJ skills because whatever about the promotion, I mean, listen, we do talk about self-promotion. We do talk about social media. We do talk about agents, about managers, about all of these kind of things, about the industry itself. Um, we, we talk a lot about the history as well of the music industry too, from where it was to, to where it is today. And we, we also get speakers and people in as well to make, you know, to just ensure that it's not just me talking at them and a few other teachers, you know. But I think... By and large, I mean, I think they just really want to get in and get get as good as they possibly can at DJing. I mean, the DJ course is only a one year course. And when I say one year, I mean, it's like it's essentially like eight months or something like that, you know, because obviously there's, you know, it breaks up for, for summer. The good thing about uh, the course out in Bray is that it uh, people's journey can develop because you can go from the DJ course then into a uh, into like a music technology course or music production. There's sound engineering. I mean, there's different there's different courses that you can do. I mean, there is an, an element of music production in the DJ course as well, but primarily it's about DJing. And I, I, I think, you know, probably one of the things we've done well over the years, because it, it, this course is running for quite a few years now, is we've, we've kind of, we kind of stuck to basics in a lot of ways, you know, and that we've always been very much about the kind of the, the skills element of it, you know, and to kind of, we always sort of we haven't deviated too much from the original ethos of the of the course, I don't think. You know, a lot of the tasks even are, are similar now to what they were at the beginning as well in terms of like particular DJ skills that we would like ask people to do or show people first of all and then kind of see if they can do them over time. So um, I think maybe one of the things that has changed a little bit is maybe the turntablism side of it. I mean, we don't do as much of that. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call myself a turntablist uh, when you consider, you know, there's like the hip hop scratch turntablist side of DJing. That's just a, a completely different animal, you know. And we did have a few um, DJs in the past, like uh, DJ Tukai and Splice and Handsome Paddy, who were, you know, who were just in, in, incredible technical uh, DJs and, you know, could, could just do all sorts of crazy stuff that you would just kind of go wow how, how are they doing this you know it's just like it's um um i just i i think i i i don't make the point enough but i if i do ever get the opportunity i i really have to just tip my hat to to the real turntablists out there you know sometimes people see me play records and they i sometimes have been described as a turntablist and i'm the first person to correct correct those people and say I am I'm not I'm not I'm not a turntablist you know I, I'd love if I had had the time to dedicate to more of that um I mean I can do some some quite basic stuff but I really you know quite basic stuff you know like the stuff you know the hours that that some of the true turntablists have put into into their craft is just you know I, I, I can't tip my hat enough to those people but I think over time maybe a little bit of the maybe a little bit of the what would you say 
the demand for that. I wouldn't say that it dried up, but maybe it became, it seemed to become a little less relevant on the course. Um, and then also we sort of had a change in teachers as well. Doug is, is kind of another style of DJ again, and he's, he's a little bit more kind of, Doug Cooney be a bit more into into techno, and he's shown them a lot of kind of music production. He's, he's a real all-rounder as well. But I found that overall, a lot of the kind of the type of DJs that are coming onto the course, a lot of them, um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's, I wouldn't say it's like, a techno course but it's definitely become a lot more techno heavy than it was let's say when I started do you know what I mean but that it's not to say that that won't change but um but um but yeah the the, the course is evolving but at the same time we've always we always like focus quite heavily on the skilled side as opposed to the to the to the to the other stuff you know maybe the yeah sure i think we i think we concentrate on everything but we you know primarily it's it's about dj skills and, and becoming you know competent um uh, uh djs club djs you know so so i had steffi on the show recently and we were talking about the the kind of concept of the dj or djing as a quote-unquote career right and how maybe 20 years ago or 25 years ago, I started going back to when when I started when I started thinking about doing this kind of stuff, about how it wasn't really something that you could plan for as a career wise. And and Steffi was kind of hypothesizing that maybe maybe that had changed now, and maybe it is sort of seen as uh, a potential career path. So so do you have kids coming in with that in their head, like already about how this could be maybe something they could do for a living? Yeah, absolutely. I think loads of them do, actually. And I think part of the reason is because they're almost forced to because their parents are saying like, listen, you're doing this DJ course. I mean, what's the what's the point in doing that? I mean, so there's two types of students. I mean, there's some that have to rationalize their attendance and them going to these to this course in the first place with their parents who might have expected them or hoped for them to do something else. But then on the other hand, then there's others who, you know, the parents just want to get them out of the house and just want them to do anything, you know? So it's, um, uh, but I think now more and more, yeah, I think people, you know, both parents and uh, students alike are seeing that there, there are careers and, you know, there, I think even, I mean, I don't, sometimes we kind of use the words and I say we just people in the scene that there's like a saturation of DJs. And I think maybe that, that I'd like to find a better words than that sometimes because it, it makes it sound like that's like a really bad or negative thing, you know, but I think like overall DJ, you know, DJ culture, it's definitely growing, you know, and I definitely think there's more, um, it's more visible, you know, whether or not people can make a really good living before they start gigging, you know, uh, whether it's like kind of more commercial or mainstream events domestically or whether that's traveling abroad on the back of records you've released or a particular reputation you have as a DJ. You know, when you go below that, I suppose it's sort of like it's difficult to make a living out of it. I think, though, when you're at it a certain length of time and maybe there's a guarantee of a certain amount of gigs that you may have per month or whatever, then you can kind of rely on it. But I think what we try to to sort of instill in the in the in the students is just that kind of that that kind of yeah that just sort of realism about it is that it just doesn't it, it doesn't all happen overnight you know so their favorite producer or whoever it might be who's playing to you know 3000 people or whatever or more on Instagram you know that's not necessarily going to happen next year for you you know but it might you know and we'd never I never try to um I always try to 
like every DJ is different and everyone kind of everyone develops at, his, at a different level. And what I found quite often is that some of the people that actually do really well on the course, there's some of them that just develop nicely over the course of a few years. But there's also a few that reach that point of gigging around a good bit locally, you know, having fun with all their friends and people that are on the course and just being out in that kind of social circle um, and those events that sort of tend to happen between the age of whatever, 18 and 23. But then you sort of start to reach another period when you get into your mid-20s and then maybe a little bit later again, not as many any of you, um, sometimes it even starts a little bit earlier where your friends start to drop off a little bit, where the night that you're running or going to or playing at, not as many people go to it anymore. Maybe it's not running anymore. Then all of a sudden you feel a little bit older. Then you're sort of not getting as many gigs. Then you're kind of like, oh, shit, I need to make things happen here. And what I think the question are the kind of the there, you know, a lot of people are kind of in a little bit of a quandary then and that they're kind of like, well, what do I do? How do I make people kind of notice me now? You know, because I want to be able to get gigs. So then it's kind of like, do they run their own nights? But if they run their own nights, are people going to go to them? Do they have the friend network that's going to go to those events? And I think more and more what people just think is, right, I need to make some tracks. I need to just keep keeping the pressure up with my music. And what I tend to see, and there is a pattern to this, is that, you know, a few years after they do the DJ course or a couple of years after they leave the college they start their tracks start getting to a you know a sufficient level where they're starting to land on some decent labels and where they're um where they're then back doing a few gigs because of that because you know the promoter is kind of like oh right you've got this you've got this record out or you're on this label that's great we need to get you for a gig or whatever it might be and what i love seeing is that that person who has like put been putting all of their time into the studio is now just stepping up on the decks and it's second nature to be able to DJ really well, you know? And I think that's, I think it's great when kind of people have the attributes then to, to make a kind of a good, successful DJ producer, you know, in today's kind of DJ world, you know, because, um, because sometimes a producer can go out there and they don't really have the kind of the, the DJ or mixing chops yet. And then vice versa, you know, they're, they're DJing, but they haven't put out the tracks or records yet to be able to get the gigs they want. But it's really nice when it all kind of, kind of pulls together at the same time. And sometimes that takes people a few years, but, um, but, uh, but what I'm seeing again, even in the, in the, even just in the most recent course, you know, I don't necessarily want to be naming loads of names, but I do sort of see a few of the, you know, a few DJs now. Um, I mean, this girl called Shannon Blessing, who's doing, doing really well. She like did a horror radio, um, uh, video there not so long ago. There's another guy called Max Aero who's who's coming up now as well. I, again, I don't like singling out uh, ex students because there's so many good ones there, and I'm sure I'll, I'll have left a lot of lot out. But what I'm seeing now is just how focused some of some of these DJs are now, and how they're really working a lot in their productions as well. And I could see a lot of them sort of breaking through and you know starting to play more internationally. You know, at a kind of a, an earlier stage in their journey than, you know, some other, you know, other generations of DJs, you know, in the past, you know. So I do think, um, yeah, I think some 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 DJs, and I don't want to say they're kind of learning, you know, how to play the game. I don't like kind of talking like in those sort of terms too much, but they're they're kind of, they're, yeah, they're, they're, they're seeing, you know, they're seeing what it takes and, um, and are working really, really hard. And um, 
And yeah, I'd like to think that some of those people will will be able to kind of break through on a kind of a wider level, like I said, uh, sooner than uh, sooner than later uh, than later. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. I mean, it's a it's an interesting thing, really, because I mean, I I mean, I can absolutely see the value in that that kind of um, input to a career, right? It must be extraordinarily useful. And I, I always kind of kick myself for not having studied music technology more seriously. You know, I'm completely self-taught at everything. And whilst there's something to be said for that, like I do feel like having someone who really knows what they're talking about tell you how to do shit at, the, at an early stage can be really useful just I mean, at a really basic level. You know what I mean? The thing I always feel with this, I try to say it as well, is I, I, I really don't like taking too much credit as well. I mean, I know and I do definitely get some nice feedback from students and, uh, you know, including some of the people I mentioned there as well. But I've also seen how hard they've worked as well. And, you know, yeah, like you said, just getting that little bit of direction, you know, can mean... Can can really be it can make such a big difference but at the end of the day they are the ones that are putting in the hard work and are you know spending time on making tracks and you know maybe there's more there's more available to them now you know certainly with music making online now as well I mean I remember I don't know if, who, who I saw an interview with or maybe I, was it someone like Carrie Leckabush or somebody like that not so long back or maybe it was a few years back who knows but they were just sort of talking about how like when they were making music originally there was no YouTube videos there was no kind of information around and I'm sure even getting feedback from people was difficult as well but um, but now it's like you know you can you know it's, it's very easy to kind of get feedback um, but again whatever about feedback whatever about videos whatever about people showing you stuff I mean I think it's just you know hard work still sort of like um, you know is is the most important and I, I think yeah I, I, I think what 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 I'm seeing with some of them and I'll just finish on this bit or what I have seen some of a lot of the better ones as well are the people that are going places with it or make a difference is, is they understand that getting too caught up in partying and wasting too many of their weekends or too many of their nights, you know, in a kind of party mode or party lifestyle isn't necessarily going to serve them well. And that can sometimes take a while to get out of your system. But I think ultimately a lot of them do reach a point where they kind of go, right, it's time to take this seriously. Because you can, I think with DJing, quite a lot you have to, you kind of have to sort of, drag yourself from back up off the ground a lot do you know what I mean and there are the times where you could very potentially just give up but I think quite often it's also that sort of catalysts to just make you try that little bit harder again and actually go into another another kind of you know increased intense sort of mode in terms of your work rate and wanting to do better and wanting to make tra- better tracks and wanting to put out mixes and just wanting to be a better artist you know and I, I definitely think there's a kind of a, a staying power in you know a lot of the better DJs and stuff who are able to just take things to to another level you know not long after times where you may have met them and they were maybe a little bit sort of down-spirited about things and I love seeing that kind of that quick elevation that can happen with some people sometimes when they uh, when they get a knockback is they turn that knockback into something really positive and you know it's definitely something that's in the back of my mind sometimes when you know when things aren't always going as well as I wanted to is that you know you, you have to turn that negative into a positive and um yeah, I think that's the sign of, of 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 successful or good artists or people who actually stay in the game is their 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 ability to be able to do that. So yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's crucial, right? Because I mean, no one has a un, no one has an uninterrupted 
period of of success it just doesn't exist right and and like you say like your ability to like first of all learn from your mistakes but also like not be too discouraged when things happen that don't go your way right I mean it's just it's just part of life really and you've just got to be I guess bloody minded about it to an extent you know because I mean it's it's hard doing this stuff right and there's so many people trying to do it and whilst it's not like you're not directly in competition with people in that respect like it is a landscape in which you've got to carve out a you know space for yourself right so the last thing I want to ask you um, I noticed that you mentioned the KLF in an interview and I've just finished reading John Higgs book about the KLF which I, I don't know if you've read it but it's always awesome um, <laughs> if you haven't but um, he makes the point in that that or rather he makes the argument and I'm not completely sure that I agree with it but tell me if you do he basically says that musical genres essentially stopped being discovered around the early 90s Um or certainly stopped emerging with the same regularity that they had done in the previous few decades. And so, so first of all, do you agree with that? And then secondly, if you do agree with that, like where does that leave a genre like techno, which is which dates from you know bef- before that, say the, say the mid eighties? Um, so that's a two-parted question, a question with two parts. So tell me, tell me what you think. Yeah, yeah. Well. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, I can see, I, I, I think with every generation, I mean, you tend to feel that music sort of ended at a certain point. And I, I forget, I think I saw some sort of study recently or some statistic around the age that people stop listening to music at. I think it's something somewhere in your 30s or something like this yeah, yeah, is when yeah, people yeah. Start, start to feel that it's not as important in their kind of everyday life as, as it once was. But... Yeah, I mean, I suppose you could make the arguments that like, you know, rave culture and rave music was about recycling the past, you know, so that that would definitely sort of back up his argument there a little bit. Um, but then, you know, if we were to fast forward a little bit to it depends again who you're talking to, because I mean, I know some people, you know, people that are older than me who would kind of say that, you know, the whole thing started kind of, you know, move, you know, go essentially kind of not falling apart but kind of like it stopped reinventing itself around 93 or 94 you know there's some people I know that will like absolutely believe that you know and they they think that everything came after that was just really just wasn't up to the same standards and wasn't you know wasn't recreating itself in the way that it had before then of course you have like I think I forget what year it was was a Christian Vogel's album that was like, you know, all all music has come to an end or whatever, whatever the name of that one was. Um, I've, I Listen, I feel that like techno has definitely been going around in a sort of a cycle since, I mean, when did, I mean, it has been, it kind of seems to go around in a kind of six or seven year cycle or thereabouts every, I mean, when did it, uh, okay, like, I mean, the, the genres I'm thinking of, if we're thinking dance genres that have sort of popped up, I'm sort of thinking like dubstep and grime. Um, and then, you know, I suppose if you like, you can kind of maybe try to attach those to, you know, you can t- attach those to other genres as well, you know, whether that's drum and bass and jungle or reggae and dub, you know. So it's like, um, so yeah, I mean... <laughs> I don't mind. I mean, sometimes, yeah. I, I mean, I think now we're we're very, you know, music and dance music. It, it is quite reflective, you know, in terms of like the, or it does tend to, um, 
it does tend to reflect on the past a lot more than maybe the future sometimes. But then, of course, part of the reason for that is that a lot of newer newer crowds and younger people want to experience the kind of like the, the essence of rave culture and, you know, uh, break beats and fucking jungle and you know hardcore techno and all of these things you know they want to they want to they want to hear and feel what it was like back in the day you know and um and you know we can just i suppose you know that's just maybe the great sort of like part like dance sort of party music that there is you know so i think in a lot of ways it makes sense that people come back to the early 90s a lot because there's just something really magical in that uh in that period and I, I'm about to say that won't ever be repeated but it's clear that it is being repeated you know so it is it, so I don't know I think it's like I would like to see I mean I think like the scene at certain times has got a little bit too po-faced you know to the point then that not as many people are supporting dance music anymore and it becomes a little bit more fringe and is that what we want as well? I'm not sure if that is what we want either, you know. So, uh, but I do think there's definitely room for more experimental forms of music to sort of emerge or be kind of appreciated because there is so much music coming out. I think sometimes it could be that, who knows, maybe maybe we have kind of... Um, Maybe we have sometimes come across new genres or, you know, new emerging genres, at least, or styles that we just sort of overlooked and then they never ever really went much further, you know. So these are the other things, you right, know. Right, yeah, that's a really interesting point, if I could just jump in there. Yeah, because you're, you're absolutely correct to say that there's just the volume of music that comes out now is just in so far excess of you know, that supposed period where <laughs> music stopped getting invented. And it's so much harder now to get music noticed. And I think like the like familiarity is probably rewarded now in a way that it yeah. maybe wasn't yeah. before. Like I think yeah. the whole yeah. playlist culture reinforces that as well, even though maybe it provides a space for certain emergent styles, if not actual new genres. But yeah, no, it's it's a really interesting point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, it's what's funny in that. Maybe there's not much more to add on that, but I think it's like, I think I it would be really nice if something if some there was like I do know like dubstep um like it just made such a it helped techno so much when that happened you know I think I think that's nearly I mean I think that's probably not even celebrated as much as it should be you know because like when you consider people like Surgeon and Neil Landstrom who were like really and still are like you know kind of at the front and center when it comes to kind of new developments and you know new strains and ways of doing techno you know for them to kind of incorporated dubstep and kind of you know the, the emerging kind of UK styles into what they were doing at the time I think that really that rubbed off on so many different people and it made it made a lot of people in techno think a lot more as well about bass and about and then over time as well there were other things emerging just in terms of sound design and texture and i think it all sort of like it all just sort of added up into this sort of like this, this i don't know it just just a lot of different elements converged at that time and i mean you'll remember it probably better than me as well what was happening in berlin at the time as well and yeah, i think yeah. like that those sort of like that time that period at the end of the like you know the late noughties into you know a little bit later as well i just think there was something um i don't know if that 
that's going to happen again or if we necessarily want it to happen again. But I would like to see some sort of new hybrid styles develop that perhaps aren't as you know, hard and fast and intense, but that are, you know, where there is just something that's working on the dance floor in a way that is kind of like bringing crowds of people together, you know? And I think um, I think now some of those styles, you can definitely drop them in, into sets as well, but, you know, now everything's kind of very fast and intense. And, um, and I mean, it is what it is. And I mean, I like fast and intense too, but I would just like to think from a kind of, new music and new strains of um of uh of kind of electronic music particularly that we could kind of just see something else form or or at least give space to to us in more clubs it's very difficult for promoters though you know i mean i have these conversations with promoters sometimes and like they're they're sometimes like putting on acts that they don't even particularly like do you know what i mean and you're kind of wondering like you know haven't even really heard in some cases you know what i mean but they're they're booking them because people want to see them and i mean you see this a lot as well where you know people like are asking their audience who they want to book or who they should book which is very nice of promoters on one hand like who would you like to see which is a fair question but I think more and more like it's just it would be nice to see I suppose you know one or two nights reserved here and there for um for promoters and nights and clubs to sort of like you know, push emerging sounds. Um, I, I'm not saying that 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 some promoters and clubs don't do that, but it does feel like there is a lot of kind of um, the kind of the copy and paste approach to 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 promoting, which I would argue is not 100% promoting. It's booking. You know, it's like it, it's uh, you know you can t- talk about curating, you can talk about programming. Um, you can talk about promoting and I think there are different things to booking, you know, so I think we have a lot of bookers, but I think the concept of programming um, and and those other things that I mentioned, you know, um, we, we don't mm-hmm. always see mm-hmm. as much kind of instances of kind of that being done really creatively or at the level that it used to be, you know, where lineups really make sense. And I think part of the reason for that is because a lot of stuff is just really fast at the moment as well. Whereas, you know, that that idea where a kind of a night sort of builds up a little bit, you know, I kind of, I used to like looking at lineups sometimes where you could literally see the journey on, on paper, you know, and it's used, something I used to really enjoy when I put on some events sometimes as well. And I mean, listen, I don't want to be one of these kind of like... Uh, what we call, you know, the hurler on the ditch or, you know, the backseat driver. I mean, when, 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 when the time and venue becomes right, I mean, I'll start putting on some more gigs as well and, and start trying to show people what I'd like to see more of myself. So it's so I don't want to be someone that's just complaining. I think sometimes when we complain about things, you know, whether that's even complaining about whatever genre it is that we're into or whatever. I mean, that's that's a kick up the arse to go and do it yourself, you know. So um, so again, it's not I don't not, I just think I just think again, like I was saying, the concept of promoting and programming and curating. I mean, I think it's so Something that uh, that organisers um, need to maybe focus on a little bit more. Sometimes, you know, if we're to if we're to reach more interesting and um, uh, points musically. So, yeah, yeah, man, I completely agree with all of that. Anyway, this has been great. Thanks so much for doing it. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Paul. Thanks a lot. Cheers, man. Thanks for having me. Enjoy that. Yeah, that was Sunil Shop. 
and really, really interesting conversation. He is involved in so many different things in the scene and he's one of these people I think that just deserves a huge amount of credit for everything that he does from you know, being a really, really important person musically but also, of course, in the development of his local scene and you know, every locality needs people like him. That's how healthy scenes survive you know and and thrive ultimately and given the challenges that i think every scene faces around the world at the moment and are facing for the next few years i think you know having someone like him in your locality is just an enormous advantage and i think you know he's just a great person and yeah great conversation really really enjoyed it so i'd finished recording this podcast, but I'm just going to add something to it to respond to this whole Gordo saga that's uh, developed over the last few days, or as you're listening to this, will be last week. Um, So for those of you who didn't notice what happened, this dude Gordo, who is the guy who produced a bunch of the stuff on the Drake album, the recent Drake album, so he's the guy that came up with the uh, the average house music <laughs> that um, got everyone talking about Drake. He was playing at Ministry of Sound this weekend, last weekend, and basically refused to come off the decks, meaning that Waze and another DJ, uh, whose name I can't remember, weren't able to play their sets. Waze then complained about this loudly on Twitter and it went pretty viral. Like his complaint went pretty viral. Like I think at the time of recording, there's something like 13,000 likes on his, on his complaining tweet. And there's all sorts of debate been kind of thrown up as a result. Some of which I waded into on Twitter. I hate wading in on Twitter. I always regret it. Sometimes I do it. It's much better doing it on here, commenting on here because I can develop my, theories in full and don't get instant blowback which is also good anyway so what do I think about this so first of all um there was a guy who again whose name I can't remember sorry but an American promoter who kind of made himself the kind of pantomime villain of the piece by essentially defending Gordo but but particularly defending him in the abstract sense that Given that it was Gordo's show, it's his prerogative to play for as long as he wanted. And that threw up all sorts of questions as the difference between shows and club nights. And I've used the term shows. I've Over the years, I've just sort of talk, I refer to gigs as shows. But there is a difference between a show, a headline show that you sell tickets for, and a club night. And the sort of etiquette and goings-on, artistic goings-on are different in those two scenarios. So people reacted, like the general reaction to the Gordo thing was very much in the paradigm of it being a club night, right? And the the etiquette uh, to be observed amongst DJs at a club night is that you respect your set times. So you don't overrun you uh you know you should start on time because the dj before you should stop on time so so it should you know take care of itself and it's a, it's a kind of basic respect that you show to the next dj by getting your shit together so you finish on time 
Now, obviously, sometimes there are things out of your control and you know, sets overrun. So the first thing you do as a DJ when someone is overrunning is you ask the promoter or ask the sound engineer, did that person start their set on time? Are you running late? In fact, you can just go and say that to the DJ. That's what I often do. It's just like, did you start on time? And when I say hello to them, I turn up with my record bag. I say, hey, how you doing, mate? Did you, did you start on time? Implication being, if you started on time, then you better be finishing on time, mate. So uh, my understanding of what happened with the Gordo thing is that yeah, he started on time and just didn't want to come off stage. Now, it's a little bit ambiguous as to the extent to which it was his show. So on the flyer, it's just him and it's very much Gordo and then also featuring in small writing some, you know, the, the supporting DJs. So it's a little bit ambiguous, this one. Now, really, it's on the promoter to sort this out. If you've booked a, you know, a headliner, quite often it'll be difficult to get more than two hours out of them contractually, right? So it will be, you know, the, the, the booking agent will push back and you know, the manager will push back because if, because they'll want to, if they're booking an extended set, they'll want to make it a feature of that. And that might be more money or whatever, you know, they might just not be you know comfortable with it. So from the promoter's perspective, and this was the point that this American promoter guy was making, the promoter will be more than happy for your big headliner who you've spent all the money on to be overrunning their set. And it would then be incumbent on the promoter and the artist liaison. But I mean, like you want the artist liaison to be, you know, you know more than just a kind of, you know, <laughs> stick on person, someone with some real authority uh, in the party to, you know, explain to the DJs who are affected or the, uh, the actor who are affected explain to them properly why they're not getting their set or why their set's going to be shorter or all that stuff. And, you know, as a supporting act, sometimes you've got to take it on the chin is the truth. You've got to accept your, your status basically sometimes. And, you know, particularly if it's a situation where there is, you know, a big headliner, everyone in the club is in there to see them, which is to say that you know, the, the, the crowd are going to be happy that this set is overrunning. Now that's, Okay, so that's all that. And the kind of flip side of it is, you know, how that person or how that headliner behaves. Like, on the one hand, like I said, it's, it's, it's their prerogative. It's like, if, if it's your show, if it really is your show, then, you, you know, if you want to play longer, then yeah, everyone, should, everyone should respect that. And particularly, you know, if the crowd want you to play longer, then, then it's in the interest of the party for that to happen you know, a uh, uh, base level, but you know, by all accounts, I, you know, this, what was happening is this Gordo guy was a real dick about it and was just like, nah, fuck you. I'm not coming off. And a lot of the sort of perception around you as a performer, you know, relates to how you behave, you know? So if he'd said, if you'd been, been courteous about it, I think goes a long way. The way you conduct yourself socially in that professional setting, which is to say that you're kind of like interactions with people who you're dealing with professionally, but in, in a club setting, it is sort of a social thing. You know, the, the, the lines are blurred. It's going to determine the way people react to it. So yeah, so it's all a little bit ambiguous, you know, uh, and, and that difference between show and club is something which is very tangible. But I think it's also, and I said this on Twitter, it's also very much an American thing. 
So this is this is a relatively recent development in the European club scene to have shows as such whereby a single headliner, you know, dominates. It's like a concert almost. Like the single headliner just dominates the, the budget and the crowd and the ticket sales and all the rest of it and and therefore wields that level of in, influence. Like going to a club night is very different to that. And, you know, as I described the you know, the, the etiquette is different and it should be different. But the Americanization, and I used to work at Americanization on Twitter and I, few people got a bit rubbed up the wrong way by it and understandably so, but what I meant by Americanization is the business practices of American companies and the way they promote nights. And we talked about this on the show a couple of times, but, you know, most notably with, with Nicole Cacciolivellano, who really spelled it out, how those big corporate companies run parties. And... Under those conditions, you can understand this happening. And, you know, it's probably fine for everyone, in, you know, the, everyone involved from the promoter to the, you know, to the crowd. That's probably what they want. And as I said, sometimes as a supporting act, you've got to accept that you're a supporting act and you are supporting. You know, it's not about you. It's not just about you. And if you're taking your sort of DJing seriously, you've got a responsibility to the party as well. And sometimes that means you don't play, basically. But having said that, if it is a club, then there are standards of behavior which you absolutely should uh, adhere to. And if you don't, then you deserve everything you get. I told a story on the Discord about, you know, an incident at Panorama Bar where Virginia overran my set and I was not happy and she was well into it. And I just stopped her record and she was fuming. Like I thought, I thought she was going to chin me, but that's, to me, it was just a complete lack of respect. And I, you know, I checked if she, if she had got on, on time and, uh, she played four hours and was like 10, more than 10 minutes into my set. And to me, that was just like saying, fuck you. You know, we were able to laugh about it afterwards and we talked, you know, it's, it's not a big beef or anything, but, and you know, everyone has their moments and you shouldn't hold a grudge like that. But, you know, my, my way of dealing with it was like, you know, with a sort of a smile and a wink just to hit that stop button. Right. <laughs> and like I said, she wasn't happy at the time, but we, you know, we, we did laugh about it afterwards. So yeah, I felt like I, I should, uh, I felt like I had to clarify my, my thoughts about this. Like I say, because it, it does fit in with other things we've, we've talked about on the show, which is the, um, the way ticketed events, of which this is a part, you know, the way ticketed events have taken over the uh, the dance scene, and when you when you're selling tickets, it means someone on the bill is expected to shift those, right? And as Patrice said uh, last week, you know what you get paid, um, you know your your status as a DJ now is is your status as a ticket seller, your ability as a ticket seller. So, yeah. That's what that is. But I mean, you know, people love to bitch and, um, you know, everyone likes a villain. And uh, I think people are going after that Gordo guy partly because, you know, this kind of Beyonce and Drake doing house is kind of quite rightly, I think, seen as being, or certainly seen by a lot of people in the scene as being a bit like, mm, okay, like you're, you're doing this for, you know, it's just a, it's the cash grab, you know? And it, yeah, I think people are rightly cynical about that. And maybe this dude is um, catching some of that heat. And in fairness, he made some of the music, so he fucking should do, because it's not good music. Okay, that's about it for us. 
As I mentioned at the top, if you want to support the show, then head on over to patreon.com slash scuba official. There's uh, a ton of bonus content for you there and also access to the private areas of the Discord. Join the Discord anyway, regardless if you want to do Patreon or not, hotflushercorners.com slash Discord. Follow that Spotify playlist, link in the show notes. And yeah, we're done. I'll see you back here, same time, same place next week for the next episode of the Not A Diving Podcast. Thank you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.